This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. And a very good Sunday morning to you. It's a beautiful morning out there. Man, I don't know if you were up an hour or two ago, but, but that moon, oh, it's something special to see driving in this morning. It's just a pretty, pretty time of year. Going to be chilly, going to be uh, kind of nasty toward the end of the week if the weather prognosticators are at all accurate this time around. But tell you what, for today, we've got a beautiful day out there, and there's a lot of things that you can and should be doing. And that's what we're here to talk about for the next three hours. Uh, Clint, Ron, and AJ have already secured a place on the phone banks, but uh, should be one more line open if you want to get through and get your question in early. Lots of things to talk about. We'll talk a little bit more about preparing for the cold a little bit later in the show. But right now, the most important thing to me is what is on your mind. So let's just get started with phone calls. Clint's first in line. Good morning, Clint. Good morning. How you doing? Off to a good start. A little chilly, but uh, it's still January, so uh, we don't have too much right to complain. <laughs> oh, no, it could be worse. On the, <laughs> it uh, will be by Friday, but we tea. won't go there. <laughs> right. For the compost tea, what is the application rate for a field sprayer per acre? Um, compost tea, well-made compost tea, probably about three to four gallons per acre. Uh, won't hurt to do more. Okay. You'll get some benefit uh, with less. But uh, all the people I talk to that do it on a big scale, they they use three to four gallons per acre. Okay, well, I got a two hundred gallon sprayer I just picked up, so that's going to be well heavily applied. Then I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, the thing, of course, that you have to remember is that once you take your compost tea away from the air source it has a limited life so i'm not necessarily going to tell you to fill that uh unless you're making it in the sprayer which i don't think i'd really recommend too much danger of clogging but uh if you've got your your compost tea brewer going i probably wouldn't do more than 50 gallons at a time in that sprayer just so you get it on in a timely fashion if you were to fill you know put 200 gallons of compost tea in there by the time you got around to putting out the last of the compost tea might have been a few hours down the road and your compost tea might have been losing some quality so um nice to have a big sprayer but uh compost tea is one place that I uh, I wouldn't put more in the sprayer than you think you can spray out in one to two hours. One to two hour spray. Yeah. One to two hours. I guess I could always uh, rig up a uh, 12 volt air oh, yeah. pump. Yeah, if you, yeah, if you, you could put like a minibucket air pump it. in there. Uh, and I don't know exactly, I, you know, I guess it'd have to be an independent unit that you mounted on top of the tank because I'm just thinking about my Continental Belt and Sprayer. Uh, I don't know that there's any way that I could, you know, get that thing producing air to put in there. But, yeah, that's a great idea. If you could do a little independent unit that you mounted on there somehow and, uh, 
you know, drop a couple of air stones down into the tank, that would certainly uh, extend uh, your travel time and keep your compost tea in good shape. That'd be an excellent idea. And you said not to brew it in the sprayer tank. What what's that downfall? I I would worry about um, you know getting some residue from the compost. I mean, if you do a good enough job of keeping your compost in the uh, uh, you know in your little nylon bag or whatever, it's not so bad. But those little jets, at least on you know on my sprayer, they can tend to clog if you've got any solids whatsoever in there. So if you're going to brew it in the sprayer. Uh, I would almost do the well. That'd be tough to do. I'd, you know, I'd, I'd just be real sure. I might even uh, double bag my my compost that I'm going to start with. But you don't want to get, yeah, you know, if you work too hard to keep all the compost in the bag, then you make it harder for your microbes to get out of the bag and into the sprayer where they're going to be you know, reproducing many times over. So uh, to me, the downfall there would be uh, just you've got to be real sure that you're not getting any residue in there that's going to clog up your little uh, spray nozzles. Do you use one of those inline sprayers to uh, filter out, out before the, the spray tips? No, I have not used that. Mine, I've, mine's got a 60-gallon tank on it, and it just goes straight into the boom. Okay, because mine came with a, uh, I had to pick up a replacement part for it, but Uh it comes down to an 80 80 mesh screen on there, so I would think that should be pretty sufficient. Yeah, I would think that would be, I think that would be good. That would be uh, enough to let your your microbes through, but should keep out anything that would clog your spray nozzles. That should be ideal. Okay, good deal. So three to four gallons per acre. Yes, sir. Now, now, is it going to hurt to apply on the ground like right now when it's bone dry and hard as a rock? No, it's not going to. Um, you have to realize that of the microbes that are going to be in your compost tea, about 50% of them have a resting state, a dormant state, as it were. And uh, if they go into an environment that's too harsh for them, they're just going to go in their dormant state and come out, you know, when conditions are better. The other 50%, uh, you will lose some of them putting it on the ground when it's really hard and dry. But when you consider that we're looking at 12,000 different kinds of bacteria and probably 8,000 different kinds of fungi, gee, if we're only down to 6,000 bacteria and 4,000 fungus, it's still pretty darn good compost tea. So, no, I, I think it's good to get it out and uh um, if you can believe the weather man they're giving us our best chance of rain in several months uh you know coming up this week in fact they're given the potential i think for heavy rain uh, early wednesday so um depending on uh when you get a chance to get your compost tea made it may be that uh, a week from now that soil has a lot more moisture and i'm sure hoping for that not counting on it but uh, uh sure would be nice if we could get a good rain this week in advance of all the cold yeah, you can't believe that weather, man, because every time it's supposed to rain, it doesn't, and it wasn't supposed to freeze last night, and it did where I'm at. I, you know, I, I open, when I'm texting back and forth with my business partner, that text frequently begins, well, today's joke is rain on Wednesday and Thursday, <laughs> because it's just, oh, yeah. 
It's just almost ludicrous. Don't you wish you had a job where you could be wrong most of the time and still get full pay? I tell you, those guys got it made. But uh, if they if they had to pay the farmer, pay the rancher for the damage that uh, we suffer when their forecasts are inaccurate, uh, maybe they get a little better forecast system. But uh, uh, that's not going to happen. So. It's, uh, I, now, who was it, Ben Franklin or somebody said, uh, if we didn't have the weather, what would we have to talk about? Talk about. Now, for corn water tea to help uh, oak trees and stuff, what's the formula for that? On corn water tea, you want to use about two cups of cornmeal to a five-gallon bucket of water. Uh, you want to let it soak for 12 to 24 hours. Uh, the thing that has changed over the past few years about what we understand about trees and taking up all of that is that we're learning that the tree takes up a lot more of the liquid closer to the trunk. So while we used to be working out around the drip line, uh, current thinking is apply your corn water tea within 10 to 12 feet of the trunk. So it, in effect, makes it a lot easier. And, of course, when you're making the corn water tea, you're not using nearly as much cornmeal as we used to use when we were putting out dry cornmeal. And can you reuse that uh, corn on the additional on the first soak and reuse it for additional soaks? Um, you, I guess you could, but I tend to just leave it in the bucket and just pour it on and use fresh corn every yeah. time. I I've never really thought about reusing it. I as cheap as corn is when you're using two bu- two cups for five gallons, uh, I'd probably use fresh cornmeal just to be on the safe side. Oh. And, and, of course, what we've learned is that uh, it, the trichoderma doesn't, it's not what physically goes after the oak wilt, but it creates something we call systemic induced resistance uh, and helps the tree start producing certain kinds of cells and certain things that will wall off or, you know, protect the tree against the oak wilt fungus, phagoraceum. Uh, Ceratostistus, Fragoraceum, or something like that. But uh, it actually helps the tree build its own defenses. And uh, cornmeal, of course, not the only thing that does it. They figured out that salicylic acid, uh, harpin protein, there are four or five things that do. Cornmeal's just the cheapest and easiest that does the job. Cheapest. And for a tree that's probably about two foot across, how many gallons of uh, tea would that be? Uh, a tree that size, I'd probably use three or four buckets of uh, the liquid. Four buckets, okay. And one quick last question on um, for the liquid fertilizer. I got all my trees on an irrigation line. Yes, sir. And the the dispenser I got was made for one of those chemical powders you put in there makes a super concentrate. Uh huh. But it doesn't put out the application rate. I'm happy with. Do you know of any company that makes a really good one where you can dial it in with a good like two teaspoons, four teaspoons? Um, they're not inexpensive, but, uh, Dosatron and Dosmatic, uh, my, I like Dosmatic is the one that I like. It's a piston system. You can set it, uh, you know, for almost, uh, any dilution that you want and, uh, pretty good, pretty dependable system. Uh, you're looking at, oh, for the, for the injector itself, uh, a little over a hundred bucks, probably 120 or so. Okay, Dosatron and yeah, Dosamatic. Yeah, but you're, you're going to want a piston system. You're not going to want a permeable membrane system. Those will just not work with the kind of fertilizers we use, and that's what a lot of the uh, 
early you know earlier things were but uh these these injector types work extremely well you do want to rinse them thoroughly after you've uh, made your application but uh golly we had one that we used for six or seven years uh with you know never a problem with it and uh they they work real well but i'd i'd look uh, i'd look up dosatron and dosmatic those are the two and i think those dos uh, dosmatic i believe i'd have to walk out in uh, our holding area and see we, we've got one that's on a little two-wheel cart that uh, you just hook the input hose on one end and hook the output hose on the other and it's got like a seven gallon tank you put your fertilizer inside and we we bought it as a pre-made unit but a clever person like yourself, you could just get the injector and uh, figure out your own bucket, figure out your own mounting system that you would use to put it out. But uh, uh, Dosatron or Dosmatic are, are the two big names in the business right now. Good deal. I'll take a look at that. Now, I don't know if you know it, but you just gave my wife and son a new nickname for me, Cheapest Corn. <laughs> Uh, that's uh, uh, that that's that's not bad. And uh, you get out and enjoy your Sunday, Clint. Always enjoy visiting with you. And you have a good day. Take care. Thank you, sir. Goodbye. All right, let me get a quick break in here, and it'll be Ron and AJ. I get to talk about Wild Birds Unlimited, another of my favorite subjects. I don't know if you feed birds. If you do, you know what a beautiful time of year this is. And, uh, you know, out on our feeders, I'm seeing blackback, lesser goldfinch, cardinals, the occasional scrub jay, and uh, I don't know, about five colors of birds out there at a time. It's just so much fun bringing in the wildlife. And, of course, you're really helping them get through the winter months. And Wild Birds Unlimited, just a little bit better, just a whole lot better than most anybody else out there in the field. Their feeders are absolutely wonderful. Most of them come with a lifetime guarantee. Their mixes of bird seed, well, they have a special winter blend because when you really get down to it, birds eat different things in the winter than they do in the summer. They also have the suet feeders and the suet cakes. They have just everything you need when it comes to feeding birds and always the best quality. But they are so much more than that. They are a great gift store. And every Wild Birds Unlimited store, while they carry Wild Birds Unlimited products, they also carry their own independent line of gifts. And our store out there in the center at uh, Northwest Military in Hebner, they're about the best in the country when it comes to having neat things out there. You just have to go in and see, look to see what I'm talking about. But one of my favorite places to go when I'm gift shopping and uh, just visiting with Kyle and his staff out there are also such a wonderful pleasure as well. Get out and see them. They're right there. Uh, they're on the side that faces Northwest Military Highway. You're always welcome, and you will always enjoy a visit to Wild Birds Unlimited. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. We've got Ron and AJ to talk to and a couple of open lines. So if you're getting a busy signal, you know the number, 210-599-5555. You better get in line because Sundays usually get pretty busy. Rod's up next. Good morning, Ron. Yeah, good morning. Good morning, Bob. Uh, good morning, sir. Yes, yeah, a beautiful morning. I think about those people who live in Boston right now. I'm so glad we don't live up there. Yeah, but that uh, may be what it oh looks my. like around here by Thursday or Friday. So uh, let's let's hope it doesn't get to quite like that. Well, a quick question about weed block. I, I know you've talked about it, but I'm not paying attention, I guess. Um, I have a garden out in the hill country, and so it's a little hard to manage the weed growth and grass because I don't live there. But uh, when do you put the weed block down, and how long do you leave it down? 
I put it down whenever I get around to it, knowing that I'm going to, in addition to killing all the native grasses and things like that, I'm pretty much going to ruin the soil underneath it. I, I typically leave it down for about six months, and then I'll pull it up and go back with compost and fertilizer and things like that. Um, the hotter it is, the faster it does the work of smothering out what's underneath it. But uh, I, I, I do two things in my garden, fighting the weeds. And, you know, I've got every time I want to expand it, I'm dealing with some really tough, wonderful native grasses. And that's what I really use the weed block for. But around the perimeter of my garden, the three sides that I have pasture outside of, I keep about a two-foot, two-and-a-half-foot-wide piece of black plastic down all the time. I replace it probably once a year because it does deteriorate, but uh, I, well, what I usually do is get uh, like a five-foot width and then just fold it over and uh, weight it down or tack it down, and I just leave that down all the time, and that keeps removing grass and things from encroaching from the outside. Occasionally, someone will try to go across the top, but that's pretty easy to eliminate. I reserve the weed block for areas where I've got an existing problem in the garden. Now, annual weeds, I just control with my little push-pull hoe, but fighting some of the native grasses and things like that, that's where I will use the weed block, and like I say, it usually usually stays down for about six to eight months. Okay, so you basically that part of the garden would be dormant for that growing season. You wouldn't. Yeah, that's correct. Like if you, if you put correct. it down I, now, you you wouldn't be planting anything for spring garden. Um, uh, right now I am planting for spring garden, but um, uh, you know it's been a, a weird year. I mean, we've still got time. I'm, I've got two more bundles of onions. I'll probably plant this afternoon and some. Uh, um, oh gosh, what else did we get in uh, this week? I may expand my asparagus patch a little bit. Uh, certainly, time for broccoli and cauliflower. I would wait till next week to put it out. Um, maybe going to plant some more mustard. Uh, certainly, still good time to plant spinach. Uh, there are a lot of things you could be planting right now. But uh, again, uh, that area that you're that you're going to put your weed block down on. It'll be ready late summer for the, you know, you probably get another uh, late season crop of squash in. It should be ready by time for your fall tomatoes and things like that. So uh, I get started on that project as soon as possible. But unless you're doing your whole garden, there are lots of things you could be planting in the next few days. Yeah, I'll probably do half of it. It's not a huge garden, but I'll probably do half of it. And then I can grow, you know, some uh, vegetables and, and one half and then switch it next time. Yeah, and, and try to uh, get the whole thing weed free if I can. Or yeah, free. and when you're dealing with with a garden half that size, you're going to say, "Wow, I didn't realize this was so easy." When when you cut your weeding and everything in half, um, it reduces your output, but it certainly increases your pleasure of gardening. <laughs> yeah, I forgot and left the gate open one time, and the deer got in there and ate every tomato down to the ground. My fall tomatoes. It was this year, and uh, so I. <laughs> Uh, I have to remember to keep the gate closed because it's a high fence, but the deer got in there and ate everything. Well, Well, it's one thing that certainly makes an impression upon you. You will rarely make that mistake more than once. (laughs) Well, thanks again. It's my pleasure. You get out and have a great Sunday. Uh, Next up is AJ. Good morning, AJ. What kind of situations do we have going on today? Well, we just have one situation today, Bobby. Well, I hope it's a minor one and not a major one. I don't know. It, it Probably not much for you 
that when when you're using that uh, liquid seaweed, how how low of a temperature will your plants take before you uh, before you need to cover them? I've been using it every two weeks since about the end of October. It On- generally adds about five degrees to the cold hardiness. All um, right. Okay. It, uh, it you can still get frost damage because mm-hmm. frost can show up. You know when when the actual air temperature. Uh, I, I don't fully understand how the surface temperature on the leaves can get below freezing when the air temperature is 35. But uh, the actual freezing of the sap, the liquid seaweed, what it's doing is increasing the amount of sugar in the sap. Sugar to a plant is antifreeze, and it generally adds uh, at least 5 degrees you know, of, of protection to the cold. Now, of course, we always have to remember that there's a big difference in uh, one of those days when it's uh, 35 at 5 a.m., 28 at 6 a.m., and then back up to 35 again at 7 a.m. That kind of temper, you know, that that kind of situation, uh, it's going to uh, is going to hold up a whole lot better, and perhaps could go as much as 10 degrees of protection. But when you look at a day like this coming Thursday in the hill country, or the high our high forecast for Thursday is 31 degrees, and mm-hmm. uh, and and so that's going to be harder on the plants than just a sudden dip. But you know that you've been doing this a long time. Yeah, because they're they're predicting 27 for a low, and then 28 the next day. So <clears throat> I was wondering. <clears throat> I got some colonials on the south side of the house, mm-hmm. and uh, I may go ahead and cover them just in case. I would advise you to do that because if they say 27, they never apologize when it accidentally gets to 23. So uh, I I always figure at least a five degree fudge factor. When I went to bed last night, you know they were predicting a low of 33 at my house, and when I got up this morning, it was 27. So uh, uh, <laughs> once again, I I can't believe uh, if, if if they're if their employment was based on job performance, uh, they wouldn't be working. That's probably true. That's pro- that same thing happened here. They were predicting 35, I believe, last night. It got down to 32 this morning, but there's no mm-hmm. wind blowing. It Which just, is a good you know, thing. Yeah. yeah, a good thing. All I'll right, be around to see that little moon. It was sure beautiful early this morning. You you take it easy, and we'll talk to you later. I will look forward to it, AJ. Right. Thank Bye. you, sir. All right. Well, let's get a break in here. Still have some open lines. If you're uh, if you're wanting to get in, it's a good time to dial three. You know the number five nine nine fifty five fifty five two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty five. And uh, I get to talk to you about uh, Dr. Mark Williamson, and that is such a pleasure. I just love talking about good people. I love talking about people that are the best in the game when it comes to their particular profession and that's how i feel about uh, dr williamson you know he's he's the guy dr staff will research long and hard to find somebody that he entrusted to share his knowledge with and to prepare to carry on his practice well, let me tell you, Dr. Williamson has taken it above and beyond. He does all the great things that Ed Staffel did and so much more. This man is so broadly trained that he, I can't think of much of any kind of problem that he would be sending you away for. So many dentists today, they just, anything beyond cleaning and filling, they want to send you to a specialist that's inconvenient, that's expensive. Dr. Williamson takes care of things right there in his office. And the attitude, <laughs> I've had people ask me, 
are those people in that office on some kind of happy pill or something? But you, you just uh, you just really enjoy the experience of dealing with Dr. Williamson and his staff because it is a very a very loving and caring environment where he is seriously concerned about giving you the absolute best in oral health, and uh, he just does it right the first time every time. He will not rush through any procedure. He'll take the time to do the job right, and you'll start thinking of him as your friend as well as your dentist. If you want an experience like that, I mean, going to the dentist, <laughs> there's there's some things that you just don't look forward to. But let me tell you, when Dr. Williamson's your dentist, uh, you go in a lot more comfortable. And if you're a real dental chicken, I say that jokingly, he does the sedation dentistry that uh, Dr. Staffel pioneered as well. It's just the best place to go when you need dental work, whether it's uh, just ordinary cleaning and maintenance or whether you've got serious issues uh, to deal with. Dr. Williamson's a great man to take care of it for you. Uh, the number's 341-2569. He's out there, and I think it's called Donop Square, or Denorf Square, right there out off Cherry Ridge. Very easy to find uh, near the corner of uh, 410 I-10 on the northwest side of town. Give him a call. Give his office a call. You'll absolutely love my friend, Dr. Mark Williamson. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to the phone lines. Don tells me Mike's the only gentleman standing by, so we'll say good morning, Mike. Morning, Bob. Good morning, sir. Um, I just have a question about growing lilies. Uh, my my girlfriend has a thing for orange lilies, which are apparently very rare. So I wanted to grow some in a pot for her, and I was able to order some seeds online but i don't even know if they can be grown from seed and i'm pretty clueless so i want to see if you had any tips for me <laughs> no you can't grow li- lilies from seed uh i mean it happens yeah. in nature and you only wait about four years to see the first flowers and uh Got i doubt that your relationship will be very well supported <laughs> if you said, yeah. I, got a, I got a neat gift for you but you can't have it for four years um there yeah. are many many different kinds of lilies out there and uh there are you know there are some absolutely beautiful orange ones now some of them like uh your crinum lilies you're not going to find much in orange um, even your amaryllis so uh, you're not going to there, there's some that are real orange red but i would tell you if you want to give her a plant that is just going to be it's a kind of a pretty house plant and when it's bloom in bloom it's absolutely spectacular and uh that is a lily called a clivia or a clivia, C-L-I-V-I-A. The uh, common name of it is kaffir lily, and it's tropical. It has to be grown in a pot. It's not something you can grow in a flower bed unless you move way south of here. But it's a very, very dark green leaf. Uh, it is a beautiful, uh, it puts up a spike with, you know, quite a few orange uh, blooms per spike and over time it can make quite a plant i had an old orchid growing friend that had one of these things growing in a wash tub and i remember seeing dalton's uh, plant one time when it had like 18 or 20 spikes had like 100 flowers on it at one time so if you want something that's uh 
going to be a pretty plant as well as giving you beautiful flowers for a period every year. Uh, the clivia is going to be the top lily that I will recommend to you. Now, there are other things like daylilies that uh, don't really recommend in a pot, but if you've got a, you know, a section of the yard that you can plant them, daylilies have been you know, cultivated for a hundred years, and there are some pretty orange varieties out there, but uh, they're going to be pretty for, you know, four to six weeks in the spring, and then they're going to not look like much for the rest of the year, but that is another orange lily. Uh, there's another fun little, uh, very small orange lily uh, bulb called the Montbrecia. Uh, I was trying to think it has a second name as well, and that's another one that you could grow out in a flower bed that's just, it's real pretty when it's in bloom, but it doesn't bloom for a long period of time, and like I say, it almost it has to stay outside exclusively, it's something you would plant in the ground, and uh, thinking about lilies, um, uh, like I say, you might be able to find uh, an orange amaryllis. There are some, they're going to be more of a red-orange color. They're not really any University of Texas orange color out there. But uh, there are some oranger amaryllis, and that's going to be something that will give her, you know, pretty orange flowers around the holiday season, uh, Christmas, New Year's, uh, depending on exactly how you handle the ball. But that would be another possibility. But I would look around. If you're just looking to get give her a gift that uh, probably sets you back about 25 or 30 bucks to get a flowering-sized plant, and uh, they're spring-blooming uh most nurseries that I know, we get them out of California is where most of them come from, and they start showing up in the nurseries usually about March or April. If this is something you want to give her for a Valentine's gift, uh, you're probably going to have to go online to find it. But uh, look for Clivia, C-L-I-V-I-A. I think that will please okay. any lady I've ever known. <laughs> okay, great. Uh, I appreciate that. Thank you. You're certainly welcome. Anything else I can help you with today? Uh, that's it. Thank you. Okay. Call me back if you have any more questions. It's my pleasure. Thank you. All right. Uh, I'm sorry. Don. Paul. Okay. Very good. Uh, let's talk to Paul then. Good morning, sir. Hey. Hey. Good morning, Bob. How are you this morning? I'm off to a good start. A little chilly, but sunshine and blue skies, that's my kind of day. Maybe we'll get rain in the middle of the week for today. I'm just going to enjoy this one. Yes, sir. Hey, I got a question about some peach trees. Um, okay. I have, I have some oozing going on, some uh, established peach trees, uh-huh. and it looks like a, a gamosis, I believe it's yeah. called. Yeah. Um, and I'm wondering if that's caused from a because it, it, the, the bark is split on it. Mm-hmm. And is this a tanker? Do I have to remove these trees, or what no, do I need to do? No, you don't need to remove them. Um, uh, it is probably caused, the tree probably has a bacterial infection in there. And the only real cure for it is good care. It's something that shows up when trees are stressed. Uh, we've certainly had a very, you know, dry fall, which could be stressing them. Uh, you need to check the base of those trees. Be sure that root flare is well exposed. Uh, it's just when the trees get stressed from lack of water, from lack of nutrient, uh, or being buried too deeply, this is when you're going to have this problem show up. It is correctable. Um, we also see oozing sap sometimes when you have borers, but probably the gamosis is, uh, is more common. Uh, if you have borers, you know, they're right underneath the bark. We can actually kill those things by just a direct spray of orange oil diluted down a bit. But a fairly strong orange oil mix sprayed on the bark will take care of any borers that might be underneath the bark. 
but more common is uh, this uh, bacterial problem and uh, just good, as, uh, as the doctor would say, good palliative care, just good uh, care of the tree, which is probably going to mean exposing the root flare and watering and fertilizing a little bit more. Most uh, trees that are under 10 years old will probably outgrow it fairly quickly. If this is an old tree on its last legs, yeah, you might want to replace it at some point. But uh, short of that, I think it's probably a correctable problem. Um, I'm not causing any of that by heavily mulching, am I? And I do make sure it's away from the uh, the base of the tree, but no, I'm heavily no, that that would actually oh, work in your favor. Okay. All right. Well, uh, good news then. I don't have to take out a peach tree today. No, sir, I don't think you do. Now, if you haven't thinned it, if you haven't done your, you know, midwinter thinning, this will be an excellent day on peaches, nectarines, uh, plums, things like that. Uh, you really need to be in the right mood because you need to be pretty brutal with those shears as far as going through, not cutting the tree back, but thinning it out if you want to get uh, right. good bloom, good production, and good vigor out of the tree. So it uh, doesn't mean you don't need to do a little work on that tree, but I don't think you, you're going to have to take it out by any means. So I was going to wait for uh, first bloom to set and then trim it from there. But no, no, do do your blooming before the buds start to swell. You're, uh, you know, you're you're forcing that tree to put on a lot of growth, which you are then going to cut off. You want that tree to use its reserve uh, in blooming and producing fruit for you. You don't want to be cut off, cutting things off after they've already started to grow. So, uh, January, early February, mid to late December, this is the time to go through and do that pruning. I I would definitely not wait until you see buds swell. Good day to do it today. Absolutely. All right, Bob. Thank you much. Appreciate your help. Always a pleasure. You get out and have a good Sunday. All right, let's uh, get a little break done here. Let's talk about Green Grow Organics and Sam Sitterly and all the people that he has helped over this uh, area for the past 30 years. Sam is just a, a good guy that loves plants, loves nature, and understands the biology behind what we do to grow things well, understands the importance of soil microbiology, and knows, as really smart gardeners do, that it's a whole lot easier to prevent problems than to correct them. And when you do have to correct them, you don't want to make the problem worse. You want to use the least toxic material possible out there. Well, Sam does everything organically and always has, so he's going to use the right materials. But uh, if your landscape's pretty good, Good. You just think, you know, it could be better, and I really, really want to outdo the neighbors. Well, that's what Sam's there to help you with. Uh, he'll he'll actually do things like compost tea application or perhaps help with fertilizing and all. Not the guy that's going to thin your trees or mow your yard for you, but uh, a specialist, a consultant, so to speak, to talk to you about how to get the absolute maximum from your landscape and done organically, done the way that you and I would approve of. have so many people that come by the nursery and tell me how pleased they are with the help they've gotten from Sam and his great staff. Uh, if you would like to feel the same way, I recommend you start out by going to his website, GreenGrow, G-R-O-W, GreenGrowOrganics.com. Take a look at uh, what he does. If you think this is a service that would be uh, useful to you, and then call and set up a consultation. Be sure you understand any charges up front, and uh, you will almost certainly join one of the many people bragging about how beautiful their yard is, and uh, most of them give Sam credit. A lot of try to keep it all to themselves but uh, the truth is is Sam's the guy that will help you have a yard that you can really be proud of check him out at greengroworganics.com 
South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. Looks like it's going to be Tana, Joe, and Tony. Tana is up first. Good morning, Tana. Good morning, Tana. Ah, her phone cut out. Well, she will call back. Let's talk to Joe in the meantime. Good morning, Joe. Hey, good morning, Bob. Joe. Good morning, sir. Hey, this is Tony. I'm oh, sorry. this is Tony. Okay. No, I okay. think we, we, we jumped one spot on the on the playlist there. Good morning, Tony. How can I help today? Hey, can you hear me now? I hear you well, loud and clear. Okay, I think you guys are having phone problems, and uh, that's quite possible. Anyway, yeah. Hey, thank you for taking my call. <clears throat> so, well, thank you for calling. Bam- what can I help with? This bamboo that grows wild and invasive. Uh huh. I'd like to make a small garden fence with the to go out and cut it dead, right? I don't want to plant it live. Can I go harvest it, you know, slice it off the ground, about a foot off the ground, and uh, cut them in three-foot pieces and kind of make a fence out of it? They wouldn't re-sprout or anything. Oh, no, no, it's not going to re-sprout. It's basically a grass, and, you know, when you mow your grass, it certainly doesn't. The grass, grass clippings don't re-sprout. I'd cut it all the way down to ground level because, you know, when you are at ground level, uh, you've got your thickest, toughest uh, part of the bamboo stem. But, no, it's, uh, you know, if they're big enough, you can make a fishing pole out of them. And if they're smaller than that, you can weave some wire back and forth through them. You can do just about anything you like with them. And, you know, of course, it's it's temporary. They're going to break down over eight or ten years or something like that. But uh, people have used that stuff for everything from screens to, uh, you know, roll-down uh, shades. Uh, you can use it pretty much any way you like well thank you very much that was that was my thought i just didn't want to want it to spread into my yard (laughs) no it's not going to but i will tell you if you ever do want bamboo and there's some pretty nice varieties of bamboo out there uh there are clumping bamboos that are not invasive they spread very 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 slowly so you decide you want a bamboo screen along uh uh, the edge of your property, you go with Golden Goddess, you go with Alphonse Carr. Uh, those are the ones that are going to stay very compact. Uh, they make a beautiful dense screen, but if you're, if you're looking for a living screen, bamboo's not bad as long as you choose the right varieties. But if you want to harvest, uh, you know, and do what you're talking about, I'll tell you, you'll really extend the life if you will varnish them, if you let them dry, and then put a coat of varnish or shellac or something on them to, uh, seal them up a little bit. You'll add several years to the life you'll get out of them as a screen. Yeah, I'd heard you could uh, run them over a campfire real quick and do something similar. (laughs) Sounds like a good excuse for a campfire. (laughs) I'm not (laughs) sure. I I think it would be a lot easier and you get a lot more uniform results. Now, you know, because you're, in effect, going to have to roll them around. and You don't want to char them. You just want to kind of sear all sides to seal them up. And uh, that could certainly be done. But uh, you'd... And if you need a good excuse for a campfire, then you've, you've certainly got a good one there, and I do love a campfire. But uh, I'd rather, you know, have my campfire up by a trout lake somewhere. <laughs> but if you want to do it, you can certainly do that. But, uh, uh, you know, anything that seals it, like uh, shellac varnish, something like that, uh, will do the same job for you. Thank you so much, Bob. Have a great day. 
and you do the same. Thank you, sir. Uh, Don, who do we have uh, holding right now? Jim, maybe? Uh, okay, then uh, Jim is up first, and then it'll be Tana. Good morning, Jim. Yeah, Bob, uh, I have a couple of questions for you. Uh, All right. On Pride of... On Pride of Barbados, do you uh, deadhead them all the way back to the ground in the spring, or do you just cut off the dead parts at the end? Well, mine freeze to the ground every you know every winter, and uh, you must be pretty far south if you still have green ones. I, it would really depend on the size that you want them to grow to. If you want them to be a nice four or five foot bush, yeah, I'll cut them all the way to ground level. Uh, if you are in an unusual situation where they don't freeze back and uh, you want to just cut off the dead on top, they probably would be much larger plants by the end of the summer. Uh, but I cut mine all the way back to the ground every year, and uh, they they come back out fuller and thicker every year. Yeah, I'm about 10 miles north of Bernie, so they must be dead all the way to the ground. I just you know oh, yeah. uh, twisted the, the tops, and they were crisp, so I knew that part was dead. But Yeah, yeah no, no, I'm due west back. of Bernie, and we're looking exactly the same thing. Though they are dead down to ground level. I'd cut them off about an inch tall. I would do it pretty soon. They're not going to sprout out until it warms up. But uh, this would be this is going to be a great day for working outside. The end of the week's not going to look quite so good if the weathermen are right. But uh, you might as well yeah, cut them true. back. There's uh, they, they're dead to ground level, so uh, it'll look a lot nicer uh, to go ahead and do it. And you know, do it with pruning shears. Uh, if you got a good sharp chainsaw, you can just uh, you know know what you're doing. Wear eye protection. You can just go through and uh, take that whole plant down in uh, ten seconds or so. Okay, yeah, and I've, I've been listening to you about these uh, cornmeal uh, treatments for oak trees, and yes. I don't know. I just bought the house a year ago, so I don't know what kind of oak trees I have. I don't. I know they're not live oak, but I was reading the article, you know, from Texas A&M, and they were saying, you know, uh, put them in five-gallon buckets and then digging trenches around the trees and, and didn't know what – it, once I figure out what kind of oak trees I have, if they need it, how often do you have to do it and what exactly is the procedure? And then they also talked about injecting the tree with something and having uh, better results there. Well, I just um, I think all that is basically BS. Uh, there oh, okay. is a serious disease called oak wilt. Ceratostasis uh, phagaraceum or something like that it is a vascular fungus that plugs up uh, the xylem tissue in the tree, the tree that moves water from the roots up to the top. The only two trees that are likely to be severely damaged by it, technically any oak can get it, but the two trees in the kill country that get it that are killed without treatment, uh, red oaks, uh, also known as Spanish oak, uh, those trees get oak wilt. Uh, they're going to be dead uh, probably in two weeks' time, and there's very little to do about it once they have oak wilt. Live oaks uh, get it. Uh, the standard, uh, you know, uh, Quercus virginiana, it's not the Mexican live oak. That's in a whole different group of trees, and, and it is pretty much resistant to oak wilt. But live oaks get oak wilt, and they die over a period of, uh, you know, probably anywhere from eight months to uh, a year or two. Um if a tree gets oak wilt, you can reverse it if you catch it early uh, using a product which 
uh, creates what we call systemic induced resistance. Now, this propaganazole is what they talk about injecting with, costs uh, $500 to $1,000 per tree, does not do anything to stop the disease from spreading. It continues to spread through the roots to other trees. It just reduces the symptoms in the tree, and they usually die anyway. Um, realize that there are two ways that, uh, that oak wilt is spread. Uh, with live oaks in particular, their roots graft together, and one tree gets it at most of the roots, and all the interconnected trees will eventually get the oak wilt. The other way they get it is when a red oak dies of oak wilt, it forms something called spore mats underneath the bark. Uh, these spores can be spread by different sap-feeding beetles to wounds on other oak trees. And uh, live oaks don't, don't form the spore mats, so you're never going to get it spreading that way, but you can get it through root connections, and that's why uh, they sometimes suggest trenching, going around a couple hundred feet out from the affected trees, severing all the roots so that the disease doesn't spread through the root system, and it works some of the time. Um, it has been shown pretty, pretty uh effectively that the better or that well an alternative way to do it is to treat with uh, a product which will make the trees either totally resistant to oak wilt initially and will help and will actually cure the trees if the disease hasn't spread too far uh, there are several things that can be used but the most commonly used thing is common cornmeal whole ground cornmeal which grows a fungus called trichoderma, which induces this uh, systemic induced resistance in the trees. And, um, you know, the, the process with that is you soak a couple of cups of cornmeal in a five-gallon bucket of water, pour that water up within 10 feet of the trunk, and over time you will build up a total resistance. Listen, I'm right up against the news. I'll get Don to put you on hold. We can talk about this a little bit more if you like. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. All right, very good. Back to gardening. Boy, it's good to have a good engineer working for us back at the radio station. Uh, apparently had some pretty serious phone line problems, but uh, uh, Don hopefully got them all corrected, and hopefully we, you won't you won't get cut off, and we won't have the other you know the problem going on. So we're going to talk to Jim first, and then Tana, and then Sarah, and then just keep on going right through the show. Good morning, Jim. Yeah, Bob. Uh, just one more quick question about that uh, cornmeal treatment. If you're doing like a maintenance type uh, situation with the the red oaks, how often do you do that? I'd probably do it every six months. Oh, okay. And and my last question is, I I have a, and I I'm sorry, I don't have all the details, but I have some pine trees, and and I you know live north of Bernie, and it's real right. rocky and soils poor. And these are just pear-shaped uh, pine trees, and they're they're fairly mature. They're not huge yet, mm-hmm. but on the one side of a couple of the trees, it's you know it turned kind of brown and it's dropping the needles, and it's mm-hmm. probably a function of the 
poor soil in the rock, but is there anything? No, ac- actually, it's that? actually it's a function of the freeze damage we had last February. What you have is probably the oh, halopensis okay. pine, also known as an Aleppo pine, and that's one of the few pines that does really well, you know, in our part of the in our part of the hill country. Uh, but they took a hit last February. Uh, there are some trees around that actually died. In most cases, you're going to see the kind of damage you're talking about. It's going to be on the north side of the tree, but um, it is. It's, uh, yeah, and if you can provide them with some supplemental water, if you want to put a little uh, good fertilizer around them, this is certainly going to help them. But um, they're pretty tough trees, and uh, they they should do pretty well for you. Uh, I want to back up to one thing real quickly on the oak wilt. Um, As far as, now like I say, on, on red oaks, uh, the way that they are most likely to get it, of course, is from the spores, which are spread by this little thing called a nitty-doula beetle or an ambrosia beetle. The single most important thing you're going to do to protect those trees is any time that you do any pruning whatsoever, whether that limb is the size of your little finger or whether it's the size of your leg, uh, you need to seal that wound immediately. It can be sealed with anything. It doesn't have to be pruning paint. It could be shellac. could be spray paint. A lot of people like latex paint but it needs to be done immediately uh if it lasts for 10 days and it has protected the tree with uh okay with live oaks the disease is spread more commonly through the roots through the interconnected roots and if i had a neighbor uh with oak wilt problem as i had a few years ago i would treat the live oaks that are on you know my fence line adjoining him and i probably do that every six months or so if there's no will oak wilt in the area probably uh you know the preventive treatment on your live oaks once a year is going to be plenty because like i say what you're doing is just you're building a resistance in the trees well documented uh forest service and a&m still haven't waked up to it but there's a lot of research has come primarily <laughs> out of europe and uh it's a whole lot less expensive than propicanazole and long term it's a whole lot more effective uh there's a gentleman that i buy hay from up in the sisterdale area and this is back before we knew to do it as a liquid but uh, he had two probably 48 inch caliper oaks that uh were maybe 40 percent defoliated i mean oak wilt was just killing them got him to do the cornmeal treatment in a slightly different fashion today those two oaks are beautiful trees you'd hardly know they'd ever had a problem yet all the other trees in the surrounding pasture and everything else are totally dead so it does work uh and it has been well proven and we now understand pretty much the uh uh, physiology of how this protects them and cornmeal is still the easiest and cheapest thing you can also use something called harpin protein you can also use salicylic acid uh, you can use things like uh, willow as emulsion things like that which gets some salicylic acid into the soil that helps but uh, in general uh, if you don't have any oak wilt in your area, you're fortunate. If you're up towards Sisterdale, you've got a lot of it. You didn't say which direction you were from Bernie. If you're over, you know, more headed toward Alberta in that area, there's much less oak wilt, but there's still some around. I'm up 474 toward the Guadalupe River, kind of northeast, 
uh, yeah. uh, 10 miles. But I, yeah, and I think I, I, I was out on Spring Creek Road going up 474 last week, as a matter of fact. Yeah, I would be vigilant. Um, and if you see it on surrounding properties, really up your game. But otherwise, uh, you know, just be sure you paint all wounds. If you're bringing in firewood, be sure that it's aged. Those spore mats, like I say, they do not form on live oak. So if you get live oak wood, it's never an issue. But if you're getting red oak wood, it should spend a season out in the weather so that it is totally dry. If you uh, do that, then you'll never have to worry about any live spores in it. But uh, a lot of oak wilt has been spread around by people that cut trees recently dead of oak wilt and then haul that firewood all over the place while the spores were still active. So uh, it's it's a it, it's there's a lot to know. Uh, there's a lot to learn. So please don't hesitate to call me back if you have more questions. Okay, uh, how long uh, do you need to age live oak? firewood before you bring it to your house oh 10 minutes Okay. All right. I say that jokingly. It's not going to be, you know, if it's already dry, it's burnable immediately. But live oak does not form the spore mats. So there's absolutely no Mm -hmm. danger in using live oak firewood in any way, form, or fashion. Um, uh, It's the red oaks that form the spore mats that we have to be careful with. But with live oaks, uh, you can cut it and put it directly on the hearth if that works for you. Okay. Thanks so much for the information this morning. Always a pleasure. I appreciate the call. Thank you. All right. Uh, let's see here. Yeah, we've got time to take Tana's call before we do a break. Uh, good morning, Tana. Good morning, sir. Good morning. Okay. Sorry we had a little trouble with the phones getting you in, but we've got you now, and that's the important thing. You bet it is, and I tend to be persistent. <laughs> that's why you've gotten this far in life, right? <laughs> you know, I hadn't thought about it, but I guess so. okay uh for the first time i put a tomato in a pot Uh uh-huh it was a i don't remember i think it was a 14 inch pot Uh it's a sweet 100 Uh and that's that little thing has flowers all over it Uh is it going to produce probably so if you protect it from freezing, uh, tomatoes are wind pollinated, and uh, yeah. the cherry tomatoes don't really pay attention to nighttime temperatures. Big fruited uh-huh. tomatoes, no. It's the big fruited. If it were a celebrity, if it were uh, Brandywine, if it were Cherokee Purple, no, it it wouldn't produce. But your little ones, Sweet One Hundred, Sun Gold. Um, Juliet, those can produce literally 365 days a year. So if it's got flowers, go out and give it a good shake every now and then because you undoubtedly mm-hmm. have it protected from weather. My my old friend and mentor, Alton Grimm, told me one time about going to a uh, greenhouse operation where tomatoes were grown indoors. Uh, they actually grew them up on strings, which were attached to a pipe frame that ran around the upper part of the greenhouse. And he said that uh, every morning one of their employees would walk in with a baseball bat and give that pipe frame just a good whack three or four times to shake the plants. That was enough to get the pollen uh, falling down from one flower to the other and get the fruit set. So that's one thing that you might do. And, you know, if you've got any frustration going... (laughs) <laughs> I say that jokingly. But, uh, no, if you give them just enough of a shake to get the pollen uh, moved around, no reason uh, you shouldn't be eating your own fresh tomatoes a month from now. Okay. And that brought up another question. Okay. I have one of these <clears throat> frost 
um, sacks that goes mm-hmm. over small fruit trees. Uh-huh. I have a lemon and a mijo. Is it green now, in color? Uh, no, it's sort of yellowish, white okay. to yellow. Okay. Uh, and that's going to keep things from pollinating, right? That's I mean, when the, bees, when the bees come out. Right. And my experience with those, the one that I've had the worst experience with is the green one. But um, I have not had real good luck with those actually protecting anything from cold. I've seen a lot of plants inside of that type of uh, material uh, freeze and suffer a lot of damage. So uh, if it's going to get real cold, um, you might want to use two or three layers of them. Uh, I'm and and I've I've used just about everything's come on the market just to experiment with, but I am much much happier with this material they call insulate. The letter N S U L A T E. You can make mm-hmm. your own covers, but these and I, I prefer not to use the brand names. But these these ones that you know want to just create like a little sleeping bag you can slip over the tree i their material just in my experience has not worked as well so uh just keep that in mind if they forecast really cold weather and yes you will have to take it off for the pollinators to get to it okay well uh i used to have the green ones Mm -hmm. and i heard you say that the insulate was better and they didn't have any insulate where i was Right, uh, but it was a white material, uh-huh. and I went ahead. It it was a row cover, of course, uh-huh. and so I got that. And then they had these others that, uh, a cream color that's uh-huh. a bag, and it looks a lot like the insulate, but uh, it I'm I'm sure it's probably not the same. Well, it's just in how it's woven, and uh, it's just like anything else out there. Um, you you just need to watch it carefully and see how well it does for you. It may work just fine, but there are some brands out there that have not given the protection they promised. So it's uh, I guess it comes down to if it's your favorite plant, I would be uh, I would be wanting something that I had had good positive experiences with. Uh, otherwise, just keep notes of how it works for you, and it may turn out to be the best thing you've ever used. I appreciate the suggestions. Thank you very much. Well, I appreciate the call, and it's always good to hear your voice. You get out and have a wonderful Sunday. Goodbye. <laughs> Thanks, Dana. Bye. All right, let's get a break in here. A couple of open lines, by the way, if you uh, want to want to get in. You know the number, 210-599-5555. And we seem to have our phone problems under control now, I'm happy to say. Right now, I'm going to talk to you about Swift River Pecans. Incredible new company. Golly, I'm just so glad that uh, they came to the herb market about last fall and got to know them. And they, they just do a lot of amazing things. Their business is all about pecans. They have hundreds and hundreds of trees in their own orchard orchards that they have grafted and cultivated and they've won virtually every every award you can have for quality pecans on just about every variety of pecan out there. So what am I going to talk to you about them now? Well, I think they still have uh, some good pecan uh, pecans to sell, but they also have pecan trees, trees that they have grafted and ready for your orchard. Trees that are on a rootstock that will do very well across this area and uh, lots of varieties. I 
and you know I'm sure that changes on a daily basis but if you're thinking of planting pecans Swift River well these are the folks that really know pecans and pecan trees they have uh, all sorts of other things they produce a pecan oil that chefs will tell you it's one of the best oils you use in cooking a lot of them keep it as their own secret but you know Swift River pecans will sell some to you as well they will crack your pecans for you if you have uh you know, had a good pecan crop yourself, and you're looking for somebody that does the pecan cracking, Swift River certainly does that. One of the big things they do is producing pecan lumber. They don't cut down live trees, but they, anywhere they find trees that have broken, uh, blown over, died of old age, whatever else, they harvest that wood and turn it into incredible lumber. In fact, I think uh, there's a video on their website that you can actually watch one of their sawmills in action. They cut big, thick slabs that would make wonderful countertops or great mantles. They cut thinner pieces that you could use for making furniture or cabinets or just about anything. Pecan wood is beautiful. Pecan wood is super durable. And pecan wood, well, you're going to find the very best around uh, out at Swift River Pecans. Check them out online, swiftriverpecans.com. Give you a general idea of the location. They're they're about halfway between uh, San Marcos and Luling up in uh, that pretty part of Texas. And just literally, I guess, probably about an hour, maybe just a little bit more from San Antonio. So they certainly are accessible. They are Swift River Pecans. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, let's get back to gardening and get back to those phone lines. It's going to be Sarah and Faye and Victor. Sarah is up first. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning, Bob Webster. It's so great to talk to you. Good morning. I have um, questions about transplanting fruit trees. Okay. Um, they are, I planted them a year ago this time. They're doing beautifully, but I don't like where I put them. And my plan was to move them today, but now I'm concerned about the cold weather that's coming up. And if I wanted to know if I should wait a couple of weeks or if it's going to be okay to move them this afternoon. And what, what kind of fruit trees do you have, Sarah? I have two peaches, a plum, an apricot, and a pear. I would go ahead and move them immediately. Uh, This is a time of year that we plant bare root fruit trees. If they were citrus, I would tell you to wait. I'd tell you to protect them through the cold and wait. But uh, I think this would be, you know, a great day to move them. Uh, Procedure, of course, is have the new hole dug. Do one tree at a time. Don't go dig them all up and then go replant them all. Just dig the hole, transplant one tree, dig another hole, transplant the second tree, and hopefully your energy will hold out until you get them all moved. But uh, this would be a great day to do it. Water them in with Garrett juice, maybe a little bit of Super Thrive in there. And for the next several days, of course, uh, assuming the weather's above freezing, you don't want to ever spray water uh, after the temperature is below freezing. But if you would, uh, a couple of times a day, go out with your garden hose, spray up and down those trees, just up and down the trunk, the limbs, they will absorb a great deal of moisture directly through the bark, and this is going to help them get over the transplant shock. But if these trees have only been in the ground a year, they're going to hardly know that they have been moved. And uh, you're taking on a pretty good project, but you've got a beautiful day to do it. Oh, I know. Um, I'm looking forward to it, actually. And I have another question about a Monterey oak um, planted about the same time. It's um, maybe an inch and a half or two inches in diameter and like 12 to 13 feet tall. It's just tall and skinny. I call her the girl from Ipanema. Um, (laughs) And 
if um, she's kind of held up with a bamboo stick right now, but if I were to take that bamboo stick out, the very top of her would come all the way down to the ground and she'd just be a little rainbow. And so I don't know how to, you know, I don't want to keep her staked forever. Mm -hmm. Um, She's too tall to put the, you know, rope around and and put the stakes out. So I just don't know if I, what, I don't know what to do. Well, I, you know, um, obviously this is a tree that was grown too close to a bunch of other trees by a grower that uh, just wasn't the best grower out there, a little greedy, trying to squeeze more trees per acre of ground. The trunk will strengthen. One of the most important things you do is allow the little limbs that try to sprout out up and down the trunk, allow those things to grow because everywhere you've got leaves up and down the trunk, it's like a little sugar factory pumping energy into the tree. And this is what's going to help that trunk strengthen over time. And uh, do do not cut them off. I mean, if you have limbs coming out all the way up and down, I would every every spring I would go through and cut those little limbs back to about six inches long so that they don't make major limbs. But you want to have you want to have foliage all the way up and down the trunk. I would probably leave it staked. But what I would do is rather than tie it or tape it or whatever, you know real tightly to the stake you would like that trunk to be able to move back and forth a little bit so you know have it supported but have it loosely to where it can still move you know maybe in a 10 degree arc we certainly don't want it flopping back and forth from you know the ground on one side to the ground on the other but again movement it's kind of like if you break a, a leg or something like that movement is what will help that bone get strong again and so you want to let that tree move but you certainly don't want to let it bend extremely so rather than have it you know really affixed to a stake have it loosely connected to a stake maybe in the middle maybe on the top both to where it can get some motion and two or three years from now we'll be able to do away with that stake and you'll end up with a nice tree with a nice strong trunk oh perfect okay and don't go back and buy any more trees wherever you bought that one (laughs) (laughs) well i won't say where i got it from um, yeah. I heard you mention not to prune apples and pears because of fire blight. Is that a Correct. seasonal thing, or is it forever and ever, I just don't touch the, those two trees for pruning purposes? Other than taking off growth uh, from the rootstock, other than taking out dead limbs, other than taking out limbs that are really rubbing against each other, uh, it's it's forever. Those trees okay. are very susceptible to a disease called bacterial fire blight, and that bacteria Bacterial fire blight tends to hit real tender young growth. And when you prune, you create a lot of new growth. When you let the tree grow on its own, it grows at a more reasonable rate and is very definitely more resistant to fire blight. So um, uh, you just those are trees that you rarely ever have to prune and uh, you rarely ever should prune. They Things like peaches and plums, they have to be thinned out to maintain their vigor and to get good production. Apples and pears are a whole lot... Oh, more reasonable in their growth, and uh, they they just don't require the pruning. And uh, like I say, other than moving, removing problem limbs where they're rubbing against other each other and things like that, there's just really no reason to prune. And any time you prune, you increase the chance of bacterial fire blight. That's the same reason you don't want to ever use synthetic fertilizers. Always stay organic uh, with your fertilizing. And uh, keep the trees, when you water them, water them really, really, really thoroughly. But you're probably not going to water them as frequently as you would peaches or plums because you, you want to avoid anything that produces just a sudden burst of real
really soft growth. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. That's perfect. Thank you so much. I really appreciate all your help. Well, it's a great question, and I appreciate the call. Thank you so much. And let's see. Faye, rather than get behind, let me get a break out of the way here, and then you'll be up. Victor will be up right after you. I get to talk to you about Rhonda's Nature's Way and spend a lot of time talking about plant health, but you know your own health is even more important. And just like we talk about, there are some products out there that aren't really good for your plants, Uh, some of the synthetic fertilizers as opposed to the natural fertilizers. Well, kind of your body is the same way. You know, the, a lot of the, they're just a lot of natural things for you. And even in your vitamins and things like that, they are sourced differently. They are produced differently. And Rhonda knows the difference. Rhonda has the best products you're going to find anywhere. The products that will work best with your body, with your physiology, to increase your immune system, to uh, protect you against lots of different problems out there, and just help you stay healthy, full of energy. If you have issues like sleep issues or digestive issues or maybe even mood issues, there are natural ways to deal with these. You don't need to keep running back and forth uh, to the doctor again and again to get this same prescription refill that's really not working, why don't you go see Rhonda and find out what her suggestions are. She has different things that will help you with a diet plan. She does both red light and beamer light therapies for pain control, among other things, widely accepted by the medical community. Does reflexology at her north side store. She does a foot bath detox. She'll be amazed what this is toxins this is going to pull out of your system. Anyway, just a great person to know. She and her staff are so knowledgeable, and uh, her stores are open Monday through Saturday, closed on Sundays. Southside stores over on Southwest Military. Northside store, the one that I visit pretty much weekly. Uh, Northside stores in the shopping center out there in the corner of I-10 and Callahan. Rhonda is an amazing person. Her stores will really help you live better naturally. Rhonda's Nature's Way. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, let's get back to these phone lines. Uh, Faye's going to be up first, and then Victor. Good morning, Faye. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I've been learning some things from the show this morning, for sure, but I have a couple of... um, questions for you that are uh, maybe unusual, but um, this property is probably going to be turned into something commercial before too long. There's a lot of traffic and, uh, and et cetera. And what I'm trying to do is have more of a visual barrier um, that I can grow. <laughs> uh-huh. And uh, one thing that's growing here wildly is honeysuckle. And that's something perhaps I could move just for its beer, um it's visual uh, barrier uh, quality. Could you tell me how to grab some of that and move it to an area where there's nothing growing? Well, realize that um, you're is going to have some have to have something to grow on it and of itself. There is something called a bush honeysuckle that grows down in the Rio Grande Valley, but probably is not going to be cold hardy 
consistently for you just like it's not in San Antonio but uh, if you can create a fence or a structure of any sort for the vining honeysuckles to grow up um, then they will indeed make a make a fragrant <laughs> uh, barrier that the that the bees will love and uh, uh, there there are a couple of different varieties the two most common ones the ones that are fastest growing one of them is called Hall's honeysuckle which is sort of a Oh, it's a combination of white and yellow flowers. And then there's the, what they just call, uh, I believe they call it purple honeysuckle that's going to be white and uh, purple flowers. Both of them grow to the point that I would consider them invasive in a landscape. But uh, in your area, if you have something for them to grow up on, it uh, should be a, a very good, hardy choice that very little is going to go wrong with. Uh, they are pretty easily propagated from cuttings, and you know all about rooting things in perlite. Uh, this is a pretty good time of year because the wood is mature. Uh, you put them you know, in your perlite, put your perlite on your propagating mat, and for every 100 cuttings you take, you'll probably get about 99 of uh, nice little rooted plants. Now, if this is uh, close enough to your home that you can tend them regularly, you could just plant uh, your rooted cuttings out along that fence line. If it's something, if it's a place that you get to with a little less regularity, then I would put your cuttings in four-inch pots or maybe all the way up into gallon containers and get a really good root system on them before you set them out. But uh, you root honeysuckle just as you would any other uh, cutting uh, medium hard. And like I say, this is an excellent time of year to do it. If you do it now, you should have well-rooted plants about six weeks from now. But just uh, just recognize that you are going to need something for them to grow up on. Uh, they are not self-supporting, so to speak. I've got um, cattle panels and things yeah. like that. that oh, that's ideal. Use that's there. ideal. Yeah. Um, so those um, cuttings, I'll do that today. Uh, is there any way just to dig up uh, a, a piece and replace that with root and all to make a quicker uh, if you can situation. find the place, it's kind of like Asiatic jasmine. One plant may send out runners that cover an area 10 feet by 10 feet. <clears throat> and it can be pretty hard to discover, you know, exactly where the rooted point is. And sometimes it's such a big, heavy stem that it just doesn't transplant well. So you might be able to... Um, the Hall's honeysuckle in particular, if it's growing along the ground, sometimes, unlike jasmine, sometimes it will actually take root. Uh, if you, if we'd talked back last summer, I would have told you to go out with your shovel and just put a shovel full of dirt, you know, over some of the long runners that are growing out, and we call that process layering. And they would have formed roots there, and you would know exactly where to go cut and dig to get a pre-rooted cutting, as it were. At this point, at this time of year, you're going to get a lot more plants a lot more quickly from cuttings. They root very, very easily, and they grow very, very quickly. Well, that's fine. I'll get right on to that. About how long should a, that cutting be? Uh, oh, three, you... four inches, probably four inches. Oh, okay. And uh, oh, yeah, okay. have have a third of it down in the perlite. I would give them a good soak. Uh, 
Uh, maybe mix up some garret juice, add a little extra liquid seaweed to it, and soak those cuttings for about 30 minutes before you put them in perlite. And uh, put that tray, whatever you're rooting in, put it on your heating mat, and you should be close to 100% successful on those cuttings. What about the light over? Do you do it like with the, the vegetables that yeah. we're growing? Yeah, keep it in a real bright way. place. You have a little greenhouse, don't you? No, I don't. Uh, oh, I thought but, you had a greenhouse. So keep it in exactly the same place you would be starting your seedlings. Okay, and that same kind of light there. Yeah, yeah the brighter the better. Good. good. Uh, well, that's very helpful, so I'll do that and I'll report back to you in the future. One other quick vegetable question. Um, with beets, how do you get the the, um, the root where, where we would be eating it uh to do better than the the part of above ground. <laughs> well, thinning them out and giving them plenty of room is the most important thing. Uh, super bright light and a little time. Um, they will, and it depends on the variety of beets. Some beets are grown mainly for foliage, uh, but if you're growing uh, Detroit dark red or Chidori or you know the beets that are grown for a beet, uh, it takes a while. But uh, the top will always get bigger first. And then if you've got them spaced out properly, you will get a good root, so to speak, as we get a little further into spring. But it does take some patience to grow beets. Well, you covered my questions very well. Did you think of anything else other than the honeysuckle, any other plant that I could get going um, the same oh, way for a barrier. You know, there, uh, of course, you're, you're east of us. You're over where you've got fairly deep soil. Another plant that grows wild all over the place there is your native Yopon holly. And uh, it's a beautiful plant. It's dense. It's evergreen. It's not quite as fast growing, but uh, it's also doesn't have to have cattle panels or anything to support it. And uh, it would make a, a real nice barrier planting for you over there. Um, beyond that, you know, um, and you, you don't have any deer in your area, do you? No, they, okay. they've been There's some banished. of the viburnums <laughs> that would do this very well for you. Um, if you wanted a big, tall, thick screen, uh, loquat, uh, and you could plant those if you've got anybody with loquats that have fruit on them, <clears throat> you could harvest fruit and plant the seeds. And uh, those little plants will grow a couple of feet tall the first year. So you're really talking virtually no expense in doing it. And you will have to water if we have a dry summer. But uh, loquat could be a pretty hedge. Or, you know, you could do a mixture. You could plant some viburnum, some loquat, some yopon, and uh, maybe leave a section for vines uh, like your honeysuckle. You could also grow grapes. You know, a lot of the uh, uh, muscadine types, a lot of the... Uh, Oh, even some of the really productive grapes like Champanel. Grapes are mostly evergreen, and uh, they they give you some fruit as well as giving you a nice barrier. So I think grapes uh, would be something else you could consider growing on those cattle panels that would be evergreen, and uh, you you get some benefit as well as getting the uh, as well as getting the screening effect. That's a wonderful variety. I think I'll get on to that, and thank you for those other good ideas as well as is my uh, son, my um, honeysuckle. 
So uh, many thanks to you, Bob. Well, it's always a pleasure visiting with you, and uh, you get out and enjoy. Take some pictures now so that you can chart the progress and you can look back and see what you've accomplished. And uh, good luck with it, and you know where to find me if you have more questions, Faye. Always good to talk to you. Many thanks, Bob. Thank you. All right, let's take a second here and let's talk about the freeze miser. You're going to need them again this week. If you haven't gotten your freeze misers on your faucets, even San Antonio looks like we probably will have a hard freeze along about Friday morning. Don't know what a freeze miser is? Well, it's an incredible little device that automatically drips your hydrants for you. I mean, we literally, we sold hundreds of them last year. And those same people are coming back more, buying more of them to give to friends. Had one man that says, I tried these on two of my hydrants and it worked so well, I'm back for six more of them. The Freeze Miser is a remarkable device. No batteries, no wires, nothing to wear out. You simply put it on a hydrant, turn the hydrant on, nothing comes out. But if the water temperature inside the hydrant approaches freezing, if it gets to 37 degrees Fahrenheit, it all automatically starts dripping your hydrant to keep it from freezing. And then when it warms up, it automatically shuts itself off. This is not something you turn on manually and off again. It's something you put on one time and you can leave it there all winter if you like. Now, if it's a hydrant that you use for watering regularly or maybe uh, you have a float valve out on a stock tank or something like that, well, you just put a Y connector on there. You put your freeze miser on one side and then put the hose on the other or put your float valve on the other. And uh, just turn that hose on and off with the little on-off device on the Y connector. And that way you're protecting your pipes. And at the same time, you're not having to take the freeze miser on and off to be able to use your hose. These are truly incredible, incredible pieces of engineering. Uh, Relatively inexpensive, great. I mean, for the price of one plumbing call, you could buy about 10 of the freeze misers. Uh, You'll find them at good nurseries. You will find them at uh, good independent hardware stores. Not going to find them in the box stores, but I bet your farm and ranch store will have them uh, as well as most good nurseries carry them as well. They're called the freeze miser, and they really do work. If you want to see how they work, go to (music) freezemiser.com. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. My next two callers are Victor and Richard, and Victor is up first. Good morning, Victor. Good morning, Bob. Pleasure to speak morning, to sir. you again. Good morning. I We have two red oaks, Bob, and over the years, I've uh, been putting some compost down uh, every mm-hmm. season, and then yeah. getting two cups of cornmeal, whole ground cornmeal, and putting it around the tree within within the canopy. Now, can I just throw it out dry and water it in? If you're going to do it dry, you can certainly do that. But if this is a big tree, I'd be using 20, 30 pounds of it. Two cups is not really going to do the job. Uh, if you want to put your two cups of cornmeal in a five-gallon bucket of water and soak it overnight... Uh, then you can pour that just, you know, around maybe 10 feet out from the trunk, just in that area, and uh, you use a lot less cornmeal. Now, if this is a big tree, you may want to do two or three buckets. But uh, before we learned about this, exactly how the systemic-induced resistance worked, we did what you're talking about. We used a dry cornmeal, but a big tree, we might end up using 100 pounds of cornmeal around it. Now we're just using literally uh, a fraction of that. 
Uh, so whichever you like, but two cups are not going to be nearly enough if you're just putting it on dry. If you soak those two cups in about five gallons of water, uh, that would be a great thing, probably about three or four buckets to do a big tree. But that's going to be a lot more effective than putting it out dry in this case. Okay, I'll I'll do those uh, the five-gallon uh, deal then. Yeah, it's about a uh, good 26 inches in diameter, so yeah, yeah I'll do the... Yeah. the do do about four buckets and just put the cornmeal in the afternoon and the next morning you'll be ready to pour your liquid around. All right, that sounds good, Bob. Thank you for all your help over the years. It's always a pleasure. Thank you for the call this morning, Victor. Yeah. Really appreciate it. All right, uh, let's move right along and talk to Richard. Good morning, Richard. Hello, Bob. Got a two-part question. I yes, sir. I heard or read that determinate plants not only grow to a certain height, for example, tomatoes, but that they also are limited in their fruit production. Is that true? It is true. Um, You know, in the case of tomatoes, fruit production is going to happen mainly on the new growth on a tomato. And when you have a tomato that only grows to a certain size, if it's not putting on any new growth, you're not going to get, you know, a lot of additional flowers. Now, there are fully determinate tomatoes, uh, like, you know, some of these little real compact ones like patios and things like that. There are others that we call semi-determinate, like Celebrity, that uh, grows pretty rapidly to a certain size, but it does continue to make some growth and it does produce over a longer period of time. So uh, there, there are very few exact things in life and determinate or indeterminate is one of those. There, there are a lot of shades of determinate, we might say, in between. But uh, no, it's It'll also okay. help if you realize why determinate varieties were produced I, and well, why they were developed, the why the, the hybrids were made. And that is because the real big market for tomato seed is not you and me. It's a commercial grower that's going to plant 10 acres or 100 acres of tomatoes, pick them with a machine, sort them with a machine, and human hands are never going to touch them. And so that kind of grower is going to grow his tomato plant. He's going to pick the tomatoes off of it. He's going to pull it up and start all over. So so many of these tomato varieties are developed to produce a large crop at one time so they can be harvested and replaced. Uh, you and me probably want to have a plant that produces over a longer period of time. So I plant some determinants but just because there are some varieties that I like. But uh, I don't plant many of the fully determinate varieties because by the time they get into real production, I'm too busy to go back and plant it over again. Does that make sense? Yes, but that leads to my second question, because okay. uh, when I was stationed in the military, we lived on base housing, so I, I planted in earth boxes for the past 18 years, so I've limited uh-huh. myself to determinants, and I want to try in-ground, and I'm thinking maybe Mel Bartholomew square foot gardening type idea. Yeah. And the second part is how do I prepare the, the ground, because right now it's, I want to say it's 90% common Bermuda, which is dormant, and a little bit of crabgrass. Do I hoe it out, uh. do I solarize it, or... Uh, solarizing only works in the super hot weather. Uh, if you're going to be here a while, then it will be worth solarizing in next July or August, but it's a waste of time because it's based, basically, it's based on having, having it get hot enough that that water becomes steam and steam kills pretty effectively, but not going to happen in January or February. So what you're going to have to do on your in-ground place is, uh, and the crabgrass things like that, I'm not, 
concerned about. But Bermuda is going to be an issue. But it's it's a nuisance. It's not going to keep you from growing good tomatoes. It means you're going to have to water it a little bit extra. You're probably going to have to fertilize a little extra. But I would get out there with a grubbing hoe, a spading fork, and I would simply get out as much of the Bermuda as you can, knowing that some of it's going to come back. I would follow that up with uh, you know some good organic fertilizer and uh, layer of compost on top of that. I mean, if you could do that this afternoon or as soon as possible, it would be ideal. Then come, uh, you know, middle of March, time to start putting those tomatoes in the ground. Then you simply go back, dig your hole a little deeper, handful of rock phosphate in the bottom, and uh, uh, you're all set to go. All right, thank you much. Good luck with it, and uh, uh, just, you know, plant... Plant a bunch of varieties because one thing about tomatoes, it's one year, you know, there's a given variety might be the very best in your garden, and the next year it might not produce so much. So I've seen too many people that said, oh, man, I had such good luck with Cherokee Purple. That's all I'm going to plant next year. And then for whatever reason, Cherokee Purple didn't do as well the next year. So uh, if you have room, I would much rather see you plant two plants each of six varieties than see you plant 12 plants all the same. And uh, do keep records. Figure out which ones you like best when it comes to flavor and everything else. And uh, that will, uh, anyway, that'll help you in years to come. And anytime you have questions, you give me a call. I'm happy to be here to help you. All right, sir, I guess we took care of uh, that. So uh, I guess we're up to Robbie next then. Uh, good morning, Robbie. Good morning. Good morning. Hi. I have a question. Do you ever offer a class on one-on-one for beginners wanting to get into fertilizing their yards? You know, it's um, we're not doing a lot of classes with the COVID and with cities' restrictions and things like that. But uh, uh, I can tell you basically what you need to know. Let's see how much time here. We've got about three minutes before the news. But um, number one is the right type of fertilizer. And uh, I would recommend organics. Uh, Medina makes a good one. Maestro makes a good one. Nature's Creation makes a good one. But uh, organic fertilizers feed slowly. They bind to the soil. They don't wash away. They don't create downstream pollution problems. And your plants get basically 100% of the nutrients. So uh, having the right fertilizer is a good starting point. You need, if you're going to feed once a year, do it in the fall. If you're going to feed twice a year, do it fall. I'm sorry. I have the Medina molasses. Is that a good start starting place? This is for plants, turf, and soil. Uh, molasses is a strong microbial stimulant, but it's really not a fertilizer. Oh, okay. It's a good thing to use, but um, it's going to help loosen your soil. It's going to support your soil bacteria. But if you want a good Medina product to use, they make a uh, a dry granular product, which uh, they call Growing Green, which is an excellent fertilizer. And then they make a uh, you know a liquid product called Has to Grow. I like the Growing Green, but basically. Um, you're going to feed from one to four times a year. If you're out to win yard a month, I do it about every three months. Uh, if you're just trying to maintain a nice yard once or twice a year. Like I said, the most important feeding is going to be the fall.
fall fertilizing. Second most important is your spring fertilizing. Ideally, I'd like to do it at the beginning of fall, spring, winter, and summer. Now, other thing about organic fertilizers is they do not have to be watered in. They do not create that sudden water uptake that people refer to as burning. So you put them on at your convenience. You can do it 365 days a year. And you need to you need to water your turf grass year-round. You don't water it nearly as often in the winter as you do in the summer months. But since we're talking fertilizing, basically all you need to do is start with a good fertilizer. And uh, like I say, use it from one to four times per year. And that's pretty much fertilizing 101. Don't get anything that has, you know, that they put weed killers in. Don't get anything they put poisons in. Just get a good basic fertilizer. And then if you want to follow it up, if you're going to do some other things that are going to give you a pretty yard, yeah, liquid molasses or dry molasses is good. Uh, you can put things like azomite, again, not really fertilizers, but good micronutrient solutions. And that's sort of the basics. If you want to hang on and talk a little bit more, Don can put you on a hold. Otherwise, be right back. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now, 210-599-5555. All right, get back to gardening here, and we're going to talk a little more with Robbie, and then it will be Ralph and Terry. And what did I not cover that you would like to ask about, Robbie? Go ahead. I live in the short uh, Cipolo area. Can you mm-hmm. recommend a place for me to go to get what you call a growing green? Grand growing green is a good fertilizer. Uh, Cipolo area, you could probably go up to New Braunfels and find it at the plant house. Uh, if you come into San Antonio, east side of town, you'd almost certainly find it at Fanix. I uh, imagine Rainbow Gardens has it. Um, we buy it 16 tons at a time here at Shades of Green. So just about, uh, you know, in any of your nurseries around there will have it and can certainly get it for you. Okay. Well, I appreciate it. You have a good day. Oh, one more question. Yeah. Do you have a way of getting rid of skunks naturally? Oh, man. Other than... <laughs> Other than lead poisoning, there are wow. there are smells that believe it or not that skunks don't like. If you have a if you know a specific area that they are coming in, you know under a fence or through an opening or something like that, you can put out blood meal. Blood meal is basically is just you know dried slaughterhouse blood, and it's a good fertilizer. But most Small mammals, whether it's skunks, whether it's armadillos, whether it's squirrels, don't like the smell of it, and uh, they will tend to go elsewhere. Other than that, it's pretty much trap them and haul them off. Uh, first time I ever did it, I thought I was going to trap a raccoon, and I went out the next morning. There was This is years ago. The big old skunk in the trap, and I thought, well, I don't want to get sprayed. So I held up a back, big black plastic garbage bag between me and uh, the skunk, Walked over to the trap. Nothing happened. I draped it over the trap. Uh, the skunk didn't spray or anything. I put it in the back of the vehicle and uh, hauled it, you know, well out of town. This is back when Camp Bullis was still open, and that's where this particular skunk went. But I was talking to an animal control specialist, and they said, well, you did exactly the right thing. You kept the skunk in the dark, and if you do that, they're not likely to spray. I understand they're also making some skunk traps now that hold the tail down. The skunk can't lift its tail up and consequently can't spray effectively. Haven't tried them yet, but uh, skunks are pretty easy to trap and 
remove, but as far as a general repellent you can spray on the yard, no, I, I've not discovered anything that's going to do that for you, unfortunately. Oh, they made a, a den underneath my house. Oh, my. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I thought I would handled it, but now, last night I saw two going through my yard, and I know I still have an issue, so well, I've got at least two more to trap. I yeah, and I think if you're trying to run them off, I think uh, in a situation like that, garlic, either a dry garlic product or a liquid garlic spray, which is going to be sold either under the name of garlic barrier or mosquito barrier, that's probably going to be uh, something that you could spray around that would encourage them to go elsewhere. Right. It was fun to watch them last night because they chased off a, a, a group of deer. Oh, skunks are very entertaining. My business partner, she and her husband used to take some long motorcycle camping trips, and uh, they talked about watching them, uh, young ones, come in and play in the vestibule of their tent and other things that you, you're so nervous you don't know what to do, but they can be kind of entertaining. But uh, keep in mind that they are one of those animals that can carry rabies without showing the symptoms of it. So there's certainly something to eliminate wherever possible. Okay. All right. Well, I appreciate it. You have a good day, and I'm going to get out there and enjoy my day. You do the same, Robin. If you have any more questions on those fertilizer issues, you should give me a call. All right, sir. Thank you. You're certainly welcome. Goodbye. All right, Ralph is next in line. Good morning, Ralph. Good morning, Bob. What Good morning, sir. Day we have. It is a beautiful day out there. Uh, another hour of gardening, an hour of pet health, and I plan to be out in that sunshine, even if it's just waiting on customers and doing fun things like that. Sounds great. Say, I was given a plumeria plant and also a plumeria cutting, and I'm wondering okay. what do I do with them because I've never grown that before. Well, of course, they are tropical plants. They will not survive freezing weather, so you're going to have to protect them. Um, going to be a great plant. Going to give you extremely fragrant, beautiful flowers in the summer months. They like lots of sun. They like to be watered regularly and fed regularly. I use something like uh, Has to Grow, or I'll alternate it with Medina's new liquid fish product. And now that's for your plant that already has roots. Your cutting, um, it, it will form roots. It probably has already calloused over. The end of it is probably kind of sealed over. And their plants, you can either root them in perlite, like we start many cuttings, or many people just put them in a pot of loose potting soil. You want to get three or four inches of that trunk down below the level of the ground. Uh, they need to stay very warm. And if you, uh, most people that grow them successfully, your, your growers will grow them on what's called a propagating mat, which is like a, okay. you know, like a rubber doormat with heating cables in it is basically what it's like. And, uh, plumeria will root fairly easy on a propagating mat. Um, otherwise, uh, keep them warm, keep them bright, and it uh, will take a little bit longer, but normally they will eventually root. Again, on a propagating mat, I would root them in just in potting soil. If you don't do it that way, probably root them in perlite and then transfer them to okay. soil once they have some roots started. Sounds great. One other question, if you have time, is about yes, uh, using, using molasses as a soil amendment. Uh, some of the feed stores say that it's derived from sugar cane, which mm -hmm. I'm sure is a good product for that. But some of them say it's derived from soybean oil. Is there a difference? Does it matter? 
I like cane sugar best. You know, it's it's just like sugar that you sweeten with. Uh, you can get beet sugar. You can get cane sugar. Uh, I personally think the, the the molasses and what you're looking for is all of the well the the sugars that are in there give energy to the microbes and that's what the primary purpose of molasses is. But cane right. molasses also has a lot of micronutrients. Usually has a fair amount of sulfur, and I feel like you probably get more out of a cane molasses than you do uh, molasses is basically just kind of burned sugar and i think you probably yep. get more out of a cane molasses product than you would out of any soybean product uh plus cane is you know not genetically modified a lot of soybeans out there are genetically modified and i know they're going to change the name because everybody's figuring out how bad they are pretty soon they're going to be calling them bioengineered but uh i, I my choice would be to go with a cane molasses that sounds good. It, it's a little difficult to find because most of them have the soybean product, but uh, I had I had found it at one time and I used up what I had, so I need to start to search over again. Well, Medina packages uh, a real good product. You can get it in quarts and or gallons, and uh, okay. I'm pretty sure I'll check with Stuart Frankie, the owner of the company, about this. But I'm pretty sure everything he does is cane molasses. You might also, um, and I may, I, I did not realize that they're doing a lot of it uh, from uh, soybeans. But uh, what I typically use, I uh, um, have lick feeders out for my cattle. And I believe that's, that's that, what I've uh, been using. Yes. Yeah, the fellow that I use, I'm pretty sure uses a cane-based molasses, but I'm going to ask about that, and I appreciate you bringing it up. But if if you look for Medina brand, you're going to get a good quality product and uh, at a reasonable price. Mighty fine. I've been using just what the feed store brings. So, uh, but after I got to talking to them about it, they said it's two different kinds, and the feed store I use had been using the soybean oil base. Well. I've learned from you this morning, and I really appreciate it, Ralph. You get out and have a wonderful Sunday. Okay. Thank you, Bob. Yes, sir. Thank you. Uh, Terry, hang on just a minute. Let's get a break done, and you will be up next. I get to talk about David's Garden Seed, and uh, once again, guy that I've known for a long time. Such a pleasure to be able to talk about him officially. I've recommended people buy seed from him for about as many years as I've known him, but now I officially get to tell you that he has over 2,000 varieties of seed. He has over 100 varieties of tomatoes. He has over 80 varieties of beans, produces a lot of his own seed right here in the San Antonio area, and uh, just a great guy. He puts them up in reasonable sized seed packages so you're not being forced to buy a you know pound of seed or what you need is about 25 seeds and uh, he ships all literally all over the place golly I talked to him back uh, about this time last year and he told me that he shipped out like 15,000 packages of seed the previous week the guy knows his business he has top quality seed he has an amazing variety and if you'd like to go down and visit with him you certainly can you can see the raised bed where he grows a lot of his own seed you can see his big greenhouse he actually has quite a fun little venue down there he even has a place where he can host a small party or wedding or things like that and it's just south of San Antonio I recommend you go to David's Garden Seed and just check out all he has and all he does great man great veteran uh, was in the army a number of years and always appreciate people who've done that kind of service and I love a guy that grows absolutely wonderful garden seed right here in our area that's David's Garden Seed all right, back to gardening and back to these phone lines. We're going to talk to Terry and then Barbara and then Eric. Terry is up first. Good morning, Terry. 
Good morning. Good I morning. live in Corpus. Okay? Very good. And I have a banana banana plant that right now has a, a big, I, guess, I don't know what you call it, a bunch of bananas growing yes. on it. Uh-huh. Fruit. Uh, will they ripen? How can I tell when they when they ripen? Do I leave it on the plant or do I, how do I take care of it? Well, I would leave it on the plant as long as possible until the bananas get up to a reasonable size. Um, I've never lived in a place <laughs> where I could where I could do this, but a uh, uh, former girlfriend uh, many years ago, college days, lived in Florida, and she told me that when the banana stalks got up to what they would consider a reasonable size, they would cut them and they would hang them in a dark place. She said they actually had a couple of old garbage cans that they would hang them inside of and that they would ripen Mm. and be as good as anything you could uh, get in the store. So obviously they would eventually ripen on the banana palm if you left them there, but most people leave them on until they get up to a pretty good size, and uh, then, like I say, they'll take, hang them in a dark place, and uh, ripen them that way. Well, they're layers, and they're like four inches long. Yeah. And some of them have black on them, some, the rest are green. Uh, what color do they turn? <laughs> they, they, they turn really more of a yellow color. And, okay. you know, if you, if you were in Jamaica or somewhere like that, uh-huh. where they had a really, really long growing season, the, the, uh, bananas form, you know, in the concentric, in, in the rings, like you're describing. And yes. in a tropical climate, they would form ring after ring after ring after ring and make yes, a bunch actually, of bananas like that weighed probably 150, 200 now. pounds. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, in Corpus, oh, okay. in, you know, in Brownsville, places like that, what they normally do is form either three to five of those rings, and then yeah. the little bananas after that just don't develop because uh, that's as many as can normally the tree can support in this area. So uh, okay. at this point, it's probably going to not make any more bananas, but the mm-hmm. bananas that are on there uh, should continue to increase in size. Now, any black you're seeing, it could be cold damage. More likely, it's uh, the bananas have uh, exuded sort of a sugary material, and what you're looking at is a black mold. I would see if it wipes off. If it does, I just, little soap and water, I would just, you know, wipe it off. But, um, it's, you know, it, it's a fun thing. You're certainly never going to put HEB yeah. out of business, but uh, you can actually grow and you can actually ripen. They're never going to be as big as what you get in the grocery store, mm-hmm. but you can actually, over time, you, you can uh, ripen and enjoy your own fresh banana. I, will, I, would, I was thinking that perhaps they wouldn't be growing at this time of the year. I would think it would be in the summertime, but I don't know that. Well, bananas in in their place where they're, you know, grown commercially, they grow year-round. And a banana has to have like 16 months of continuous growth without interruption before it can form, you know, bananas. Uh So it's a little Mm -hmm. surprising because uh, Corpus got so cold last winter that most of the plants froze back. (laughs) But uh, uh, given time, they will grow literally year-round unless it's too cold. They certainly grow more more slowly in the cooler Mm -hmm. months than they do in the warm summer months. But uh, Mm -hmm. you've done a... 
you've done a very interesting thing. You've actually taken very good care of them and protected from the hard freeze. So uh, uh, you get to enjoy the fruits of your labor, literally. <laughs> yeah, they're fun to watch. They're fun yeah, to grow. absolutely. Okay. Well, I enjoy your show, and you have a great day. Okay. I appreciate, I appreciate that you. so much. And right. you uh, take we care. thank you. All right. All right. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Don, are we up to Eric? Is that who's next in line here? Oh, what I thought. Let's say good morning, Eric. Hey, how you doing? Off to um, a good start. How about the, yourself? I'm doing good. It's a little cold out this morning. I was out there uh, feeding out a round bill, but I, at the end of my house, I have these real tall yellow plants. I think they're called an Esperanza. Esperanza, yes. Uh huh. Esperanza. Now, ship every year now for the last. 10 years I've been cutting them back and my wife says I shouldn't be cutting them back. Should I cut them plants back? Because they'll grow to be about 8 foot tall and I don't want them no taller. Well, and you've just hit the nail on the head with that. They'll actually grow to be about 15 or 20 feet tall. And if you want to keep them down to a 6 or 7 foot size plant, you have to cut them back every winter. Probably cut them down to where they're 6 or 8 inches tall. Now, some years, you know, they they don't freeze at all. And if you didn't cut them back, they would, you know, grow to enormous things. Years like last year, virtually every Esperanza in the area froze to the ground in our severe February cold. Um, the the thing is that you can't just look at it and tell how far back it's frozen. People that want to have, you know, bigger plants, the biggest possible plants, you have to wait until the new growth begins in the spring. And let's say you've got a six-foot plant and the leaves start to come out at four feet, well, you know that everything above that point is frozen, and so that's where you would cut it off. But if... Uh, <laughs> If you can get her to agree that six feet would be a good size, then you go ahead and cut it down to about six inches tall right now because it doesn't matter whether it's frozen back or not. You you want to keep the size down, so I'd, I'd prune it at your convenience. Right. I mean, and it it grows to be that tall every year, and they're real beautiful yellow plants. Oh, yeah. Ah, absolutely. You probably have a variety that's called Gold Star. It was a very superior form of Esperanza. Um, that uh, one of our former uh, county agents uh, found, I think that was actually Greg Grant, one of his introductions. And uh, don't save the seed and try to grow more of them because they won't come back. The bunches of flowers won't be nearly as big. If you decide you want to propagate them, you can do it from cuttings. But Gold Star Esperanza is one of typically one of our showiest plants through the spring and summer months. And uh, uh, for people who like the flowers but don't want something even six feet tall, we now have have a bunch of dwarf esperanzas out there now in some different colors we have one that's uh oh kind of a mahogany red we have one that's bright orange we have one that's yellow that has a red center to the throat uh so there there are lots of different sizes and uh if you ever want to plant some more that you don't have to worry about cutting back that'll never get over four to six feet tall take a look for some wow. of the uh, new dwarf varieties this spring they're wonderful too that's amazing hey can you graft one color to the other? 
I don't know anybody that does it, but um, you're grafting, you know, the same species of plants, so there's no reason that you couldn't graft it. Uh, but I, I don't know anybody that's, that's ever done that. So uh, as long as you're grafting varieties together that grow to approximately the same size. Now, realize some of these are more upright. Some of them are slightly more pendulous. But, uh, yeah, right. you can create one plant with three or four colors of flowers on it. No reason you wouldn't be able to do that. That would be neat. Well, the only reason I was asking that, because that was my next question, when is it time to graft? I have some small pecan trees, and um, my neighbor used to graft trees, and he gave yep. me some bigger pecan grafts, and I have okay. them in my freezer. Okay. But they're about two years old. Do you think they're still good? Probably they got not. Waxed. They dipped in wax. Yeah, but he told well, me you don't put them in the freezer. Yeah, you need to put them in the refrigerator. If you put them in the freezer, that's that's pretty hard on them. Uh, you bring up a real good point, though, because uh, the the time that you do it, you need to harvest your wood that you're going to graft in the fall, typically in November, December. Waxing them is you know optional, but you want to put them in the refrigerator, not the freezer. And then we actually do the grafting oh, okay. typically in about March or so. Um, so okay. at this point, uh, you can give it a try. Go ahead and get some, get some graft wood immediately because the graft wood needs to be delayed in development. Um, and we'll just have to see how successful, but, uh, keep it in the refrigerator, not in the freezer. After two years, I really doubt that that would be viable. Okay. I don't know. He, he, he I live around LaGrange uh-huh. over here and he, and he's been doing it for he's probably thirty years, probably. And he told me oh, it'll yeah. it'll last a couple of years in the in the freezer. Now I don't know, so I'm gonna. <laughs> well, I tell you what, if you want to call the smartest pecan people I know, uh, this this uh, company is over uh, not too terribly far from you, but uh, they're called Swift River Pecans. And uh, Troy and all his staff over there, those guys have grafted over a 1,000 trees. Uh, so oh, yeah. you might call and ask him, and I'd love to hear back from you if you do that, but they're incredibly nice people that will give you all the help and information you need because they personally have probably grafted more trees than anyone else in the area. And it's a really neat company, just really nice nice people to, to know. I just I think that some of the amazing things that you can do is grafting. I've, I've never anything like it well, oh yeah well, and it's interesting the only bad on thing about some the things you can graft pecans it. on hickory uh and and they use some different rootstocks but you know you can't graft a pecan tree on an oak tree but it's interesting uh some of the things that they can do one of the things that uh was popularized a few years ago with apples uh, was uh, they've they've come up with some dwarfing rootstocks. In the case of apples, it was over in England at the East Malling Research Station. They developed what they call Malling Nine or M Nine rootstock, and you can graft any animal or any uh, any apple onto this particular rootstock, and you get a dwarf tree with big apples. Uh, we have dwarfing oh, wow. rootstock. It's called flying dragon for citrus. And you can graft yeah. lemons, limes, almost anything onto flying dragon. And you get big lemons and limes on a dwarfed tree. So, yeah, grafting is a fascinating subject. I had an old professor in college that uh, we actually we grafted mainly peaches and plums because they were pretty easy. But uh, there's a lot of different things you can know and do. It's, it's a very interesting hobby. 
Now, do you just, in your experience, do you just cut the wax off at a V and put a V in the limb? And what do you wrap it with? Like a they, old they actually or old make something they call the grafting wax that you would put over. Uh, the little piece you graft on is called the scion. The other end is the rootstock. And there are many different things you do depending on the size of the limbs. You can do cleft grafting. You can do whip grafting. Uh, there, there are a number of different ways to do it. Uh, many times, like you're describing, you, you uh, make an uneven V. Uh, you put your, your scion onto the other. You kind of smear the grafting wax on the sides, and then you wrap it up with a tape. Uh, I know at one point, Fanix Nursery here in San Antonio actually sold a grafting kit that had the wax, had the tape, had everything you needed in there. But um, oh, okay. Uh, it's find it's one of those things that. I'm going to tell you, even if you have to go online, go find a video of somebody doing it, uh, and it'll be a whole lot easier than, <laughs> it's like telling somebody, you know, how to do surgery over the telephone. It's just not going to work. <laughs> you got to do it. You got to see it done in person yeah. before you know what to do. Right. All right. Well, I appreciate everything. Well, good luck with it, and let me know, uh, let me know how it works for you. I look forward to hearing from you. All right. Thank you. Yes, sir. Thank you. All right. Let's uh, get a spot in here, and then we'll get back to some more phone calls. I get to talk to you about Southwest Metal Roofing Systems, and that's always such a pleasure. You know, I don't talk about anybody that I don't know, that I don't have experience with, and Gosh, I've known Southwest Metal Roofing Systems for 20 years or so since they put the roof on my home, and I've never known a roofing company that did such a good job uh, knowing the people there. I mean, I, I could tell you stories about their integrity, what, what good people they are. Southwest Metal Roofing Systems simply uses the best material out there, truly a lifetime quality material, and they do the best workmanship. I mean, they, they go way above and beyond what the building codes require as far as putting on a durable roof. It is truly the last roof you will ever put on your home. And Southwest Metal Roofing Systems does new construction as well as replacing damaged roofs. I mean, if you're building a new home, uh, I did this when uh, we built a new groundwater district office up in Bernie. I told the architect and builder, I want to see a Southwest Metal Roofing System roof on this building. They both said, oh, that would be too expensive. And I said, you call and find out. And both of them came back to me and said, wow, I didn't know we could get such a good roof at such a reasonable price. Southwest Metal Roofing Systems roofs, I mean, they're, they're your insurance company almost certainly give you a discount on your homeowner's insurance. Mine gave me 2% off. They're going to save you money on your utility bills every month. Why would you put any other roof on your home? Lots of choices of looks and colors. You give them a call and learn more. 210-822-6868. That's 210-822-6868 for Southwest Metal Roofing Systems. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. Uh, Barbara's the only person I've got holding, so we've got time for two or three more calls. If you'd like to get through but get a busy signal, you know the number, 210-599-5555. While I say good morning, Barbara. Hi, Bob. Um, I've got three questions for you, hopefully short okay. ones. Um, first of all, asparagus. Um, my asparagus, of course, is kind of frozen now. Um, I'm getting ready today, I guess, to cut it down, I guess, right to the ground, I believe, is cut what it, I've done. Cut it down to an inch tall. You probably have new, very tasty, delicious asparagus spheres coming up uh, very shortly. So, yeah, this is uh, 
Uh, this is a time, whether it's frozen or not, cut it back really low. Okay, and I have room for, in that same bed, I, I picked up about three or four more bunches of it. Is this the time to put them in, or is it too late? Or oh, no, wait oh, this is a perfect time for planting asparagus. Uh, put them, uh, give them at least uh, about a foot between plants, but you've grown asparagus before. You know how big they get, but uh, right. this is the ideal time to plant asparagus. Put those crowns no more than about an inch below ground level, and uh, is, <laughs> I think you probably agree with me. It's just impossible to have too much asparagus. That's true. <laughs> Okay. Um, another question I have. I have a, uh, a Myers lemon tree in a in a large pot. It's about oh I don't know four feet tall I guess. Um, okay. I brought everything. The freeze is coming, but um, when they did come earlier this winter, but I missed that one. So it froze. It looks very dead. I I decided oh I totally killed it. But now it does have um, a shoot coming up way from the bottom of the trunk. That's green. It's up about you know eight inches. Is that worth hanging on to is it ever going to produce anything you need to look at it very carefully if the stem looks like it's kind of flattened uh if it's making a you know large thorns uh Myers lemons typically have little thorns that are about half an inch long the rootstock has right. thorns that will be a couple of inches long uh the Myers lemon has a relatively rounded stem the rootstock has a very much a flattened stem so Unfortunately, it probably is rootstock, but uh, you can look at it carefully. If it is rootstock, I would very definitely cut it back, see if there's any chance that you can force it out to come out above the graft. But uh, and, and I can't tell you without seeing, but those are what you would look for to attempt to determine whether it's rootstock or whether it's, uh, it is the Myers lemon. If it is the rootstock, you could always let it grow out and regraft it. Or you could simply get a new tree. <laughs> okay, okay, all right. And my last question. Um, let me let, can, let me back up for just one oh, second, sure. Barbara, and tell you one more thing about this. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously, sometimes it's hard to protect something like a lemon tree. And, uh, of course, we had lots of people with much, much bigger trees that froze. But if you can't protect the whole thing, wrap the trunk. Get some insulator or another good uh, row cover fabric and, and wrap that three feet of trunk. That way, even if the top of the tree freezes, you'll have plenty of wood to come back out that will still be Myers lemons. Even if you can't protect the whole tree, if you can protect as little as one foot of the trunk down toward ground level, then you'll almost always have your tree come back for you oh okay all right good advice um my last question is kind of silly but uh when when my uh my red oak dropped all its leaves here in the fall i raked them all up and i raked them right up around to make a ring right around the trunk so they're they're surrounding the trunk of the tree right up against it probably 10 inches deep is that a bad thing should i rake them back away well, you know, right now they're loose leaves. As they start to break down and really turn into more of a mulch than uh, just loose leaves, then you would not want that. But at this point, I'm not going to worry about it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> hope the wind doesn't come and blow them all away this week. But uh, long term, you would not want them piled up around the trunk. But for the rest of this winter, nah, it's not going to be any problem at all. you got a lot of other things I'd worry about taking care of before I worried about that. Right, right. Okay. All right. Well, that's it for my questions. Thank you so much. Good questions they were. Thank you for the call this morning. <laughs> Goodbye.
All right, probably going to finish this show with Don and John and Dennis, and we will take another break in just a second. But uh, Don is up next. Good morning, Don. Good morning, Bob. My Good morning, down in Divine. Plum. Yeah, my question is, I've got plum tree. i got one that I've got to trim. I've done the peaches. I planted a new pear. I planted another plum. My older plum tree has got those little stub ants. It's got like 20 of them on each stalk coming out. Uh-huh. Are those the ones that you considered to clip out, to thinning out the tree or uh, prune it for the springtime? You just kind of go up and down the major limbs, yes, and take out about every other one. You should thin that plum out about 50%. And uh, hopefully, you know, you don't have buds coming out because that's what happens with some varieties. They start to bud out a little bit early, and then they freeze back, and we don't get much uh, fruit production. But you're certainly not too late to do it. And, uh, yeah, I would I would definitely go through and thin it out about 50%. Yeah, because that's what I was wondering, because I've trimmed out the neighbor's plum tree, and they don't have those, the same little nodules on it. Well, you know what I mean? The, maybe the a different up and variety. Down the it's hard to say without seeing them. Okay. That's what I was just wondering, if I've got to trim those out, because I've already i got a, a forest laying on the ground right now from pruning all the trees already. <laughs> well, I, you know, it's, it's a little hard to say if you've trimmed out the, you know, the six-inch limbs and things that are trying to sprout out. You've probably done all you need to do, but if you've got other little places, those are what we would call adventitious buds, and you want to go along and just, you know, kind of break them out with your thumb, uh, they should they should break off pretty easily. You can certainly do that. But uh, you're going to have to judge looking at your own tree. You know what you're doing. Yeah, because that tree's never produced anything. Well, let's hope this is the year that it's going to. Well, it's like the peach tree last year. I got the wrong peach tree for one for Fredericksburg. We had all the snow, and it produced 120 peaches. Well, I I I hope we don't have any more winters like that. I I'll I'll sacrifice a tree that doesn't produce uh, rather than have snow and uh, bitter cold like we had last year. So I'm not going to yeah, wish you luck on getting more of them off your Fredericksburg peach, but your uh, your divine plum should do very well. All right, because I bought Santa, uh, Santa Rosa plums. Yeah. So that's the only thing I can get at Tractor's Pie that I think will work. Well, Santa Rosa is a self-fertile plum, so uh, it is, if you don't have room for a bunch of trees, it's a real good plum, and it uh, certainly makes a good-sized plum and a good tasty plum. I think you'll do well with Santa Rosa. That's not a bad choice at all. All righty, Bob. Thank you very much. You are certainly welcome. Good to hear from you, Don. It's a sunny day. All my cares have gone away. I've gone fishing. Got no worries on my mind I Left them all behind And gone fishing There's nothing you could say That would bring me down today Not while I'm fishing There's nothing you could do That would make me feel blue While I'm fishing <laughs> Not I truly not know how you do it. You said you had a new song for us, and uh, 
That's a good new song. I, it's, uh, I wish we were out fishing today. Well, I don't know. It's going to be a little, little cool, a little windy, but uh, any reason to be outside. That's my chief engineer, Mr. Don Cooper Stevens, that uh, in the mornings that he's doing the engineering for me, we always get a fishing song or at least a nature song for the last commercial break of the show. And uh, uh, that's that's very definitely a winner. We'll keep that one. All right. Uh, it looks like we're going to probably finish the show up with John and Dennis. Uh, John is up first. Good morning, John. Hello, Bob. Sorry, How are you? I appreciate you taking my call. My uh, pleasure. Like you, I'm a pilot, and I was very jealous of you being at Oshkosh last year, or this year, rather. <laughs> so uh, it's uh, it's a, a great experience up there. I've been there once. but uh, Very good. Times. I have a question for you. I've got a 30-acre uh, piece of heaven uh, that's south of Comfort, and okay. I'm blessed by having a, a good number of, a fair number of madrone trees. Yes, sir. I have uh, researched on A&M's website uh, how they tried to reproduce madrones from the seeds, and uh, uh, that seems like a daunting task. I was wondering about air layering those, and when you're Previous callers, a couple before, had talked about grafting. Uh, air layering is just another uh, modification of that. Um, but I wonder, what uh, what do you suggest for air layering of madrones? You know, I've never tried it. Um, people are successful growing them from seed. A&M may not be, but uh, some of the folks over at Love Creek Orchards over in Medina, they've actually gotten pretty good. The seed is apparently pretty easy to germinate. The problem is they get a fungus disease that wipes out the seedlings when they get about three inches high. So there are people producing them from seed. I've never tried air layering. You know, they don't have a distinct bark layer you know most and they they do have in effect an outer bark and uh, they do have you know xylem phloem and cambium and so what i think you would have to do would be just basically take a slice a very oh maybe eighth of an inch deep slice out of um, the side of the tree, you'd want to do the smooth bark. Madrones, of course, are exfoliating. They tend to lose most all of their bark. But I would mm-hmm. just take a little section, maybe two inches long, maybe five-eighths of an inch wide. I would just slice the bark off the side. And I do this during the warm months, not this time of year. Right. And then I just wrap it up with sphagnum moss and wrap with aluminum foil or plastic to keep the moisture in. I don't know anyone that's ever produced them from air layers but i don't ever know i don't know anyone that's ever tried so i'm not going to say it won't work i'd love for you to try it this summer and uh typically we do air layers in the warm months of the year typically it takes about six months or about six weeks rather to get some root growth into them so uh i'd say go for it uh they do not transplant well i will not encourage you to try to dig them because that rarely is ever successful unless you find a very small one but uh if you uh if you want to try growing some seed uh you might talk to uh somebody over at love creek and ask them what their secret is they're awful nice people but uh it'd be fun to try an air layer so give it a shot let me know how it works for you i will do that and give you a report uh i have one other quick question if i could yes sir my uh i when i was clearing out some cedars and that's been that's been my project now uh just for a short period of time probably eight years um but uh <laughs> yep. 
when I was clearing the cedars, we came across a bush that uh, actually I had to get my neighbor to help me identify uh, an elbow tree. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar yeah, elbow with bush. that? Yeah, uh-huh. elbow it's a native bush. plant. And I understand it's very good for the wildlife. A lot of birds, uh, protein eaters, uh, jays and uh, mockingbirds and whatnot like that. Is that mm-hmm. correct? Yes, sir. Okay. Anything about propagating that? Or transplanting uh, very small shoots. If you can find seedlings of it, that's going to be your best bet. I think you would be more successful in probably in air layering that than you're going to be on your madrones. Uh, elbow bush is also propagated from hardwood cuttings. Uh, normally, those cuttings are taken in about November. Uh, you might try taking cuttings uh, this late. I'd root them in perlite. I'd root them with some bottom heat if possible. Give them a good seaweed and molasses soak. But uh, uh, and and again, that's it's one of those things that I have not tried propagating before. There's a company up in Austin called Native Plants of Texas. You might give them a call because yeah. I know they've done some propagation on them, and they might be able to give you a little bit more specific in, information on what they've done that's been successful. But it is a good plant. It sounds like you've got an interesting piece of property. Just be careful with clearing too much of the cedar because you may expose some of those interesting plants you have uh uh, to more predation from the deer, and I know on my own property, and I'm I'm blessed with one hillside that probably has 60 or 80 madrones on it, but it seems like they always start out in real thick cedar so the deer can't get to them. So while I'm yeah. all in favor of moving the cedar, if it's around a really unusual plant, uh, thin it out. Probably don't take it completely out because we don't want to give the deer a chance to eat it down to nothing. Yeah, I, I did. I did have that happen. And yeah. uh, seems like a, a couple of couple of bucks had uh, really been attracted to that to uh, take the velvet off their their yeah. antlers. So, yep. Uh, well, one last compliment. Uh, I moved down here from Dallas and uh, used to enjoy you when you were on with Howard Garrett for brief stints. And uh, uh, now I'm, I've come down to to my little piece of heaven, and uh, I enjoy you every weekend. Thank well, you I appreciate that. I do an interview segment with Howard at 8 o'clock on Saturday morning. So if you want to hear yep. the Dirt Doctor, we, we do about 20, 30 minutes every Saturday and uh, still enjoy doing that. But that's part of a Saturday show right around 8. And I'm going to let you go, John, so I can get Dennis in here before the end good. of the show. Good morning, Dennis. Hey, good morning. How are you? Off to a good start. Hope you are as well. I had two quick ones. One was... Tell your engineer to let me know what the name of that song was because my wife and I have a list of songs we want played at our funerals, and that's going to be a good one for me. (laughs) Well, I'll tell Don to talk to you right at the end of the show if he's able to do so. What was question number two? Actually, I was coming back from a fishing trip in Del Rio, and I stopped for breakfast, and just as I got back in the truck, you were talking to somebody about, I think it was a young tree, and how to trim limbs. We, we put in a uh, Monterey oak about mm-hmm. a year and a half ago, and it's, uh, we supported it with the winds, but now we've taken all those off. And I've got limbs that are growing out about a foot and a half to two feet off the ground all the way up to the top, and it's probably nine or ten feet tall. How big in um, diameter is the trunk of the tree? Uh, in diameter, I'm going to say four to six inches, maybe. 
Okay. Once it gets up to six inches, you might as well take every limb all the way off. Cut it back to the branch collar. You don't want to cut the branch collar, but if you look right where it comes out from the trunk, you'll see kind of a little specialized, different-looking group of cells right there, and you'll cut just just outside of that. Up until that size, what I do is go through every winter and cut those limbs back to about six inches long because the more foliage we have up and down the trunk, uh, the faster that trunk will grow and the stronger the tree will become. But once you get up five or six inches, then you can go ahead and take those limbs all the way off. But otherwise, I let them grow. I like the leaves. I just don't want them to, uh, to turn into big limbs.